we go. Okay. Good morning. I'm calling to order the special meeting of the Board of Supervisors of Wednesday, June 21st, 2023. And the purpose of this meeting is to discuss the 23-24 proposed budget. Um, Matthew, if you'd like to give us the order of the day again, then we'll open to public comment. Sure, happy to do so. So uh, we're gonna start off with public comment and then we're gonna get an uh, update on continuous improvement and strategic planning and that was moved from yesterday afternoon because we went a little long yesterday afternoon. Uh, then we'll go right back to our regular schedule which will be the five-year capital improvement plan and then the overview for the county roads capital program. And then we'll break for lunch and we'll come back in the afternoon where you'll meet as the open space district to consider the open space budget, uh, as the flood control district to consider the flood control budget, and then Department of Finance will give an overview of all the special district budgets. And that will be um, the end of this afternoon. And then we'll recess and we'll be back uh, Thursday afternoon at 1.30 for the wrap up and the final vote on the budget. Very good, thank you. Uh, I'm going to open now to public comment. Thank you. Yes, roll call. I'll meet you if you will on how to participate remotely. <coughs> Sorry, I dropped that. President Morgan Peters? Yeah, here. Vice President Rodoni? Here. Supervisor Sackett? Here. Supervisor Lucan? Here. Supervisor Rice? Here. And the Zoom instructions are as follows. If you are joining us today on Zoom and would like to participate, please use the raised hand icon located on your screen. If you are participating by landline, press star nine to raise your hand. When it is your turn to speak, your name will be called. After your name is called, you will be prompted to unmute your device. Or if you are participating by landline, you will hear that you are unmuted. That concludes the instructions and I'll pass the meeting back to President Morgan Peters. Thank you very much. Okay, now we'll open public open time. Uh, a lot of the public here, Eva, <laughs> will you be speaking this morning? <clears throat> Good morning. A very wise woman once told me in all seriousness that the world is run by morning people and Ava is not a morning person. <laughs> Nevertheless, I come before you today because I am seeking answers about uh, conflicts of interest on the Sheriff's Civilian Oversight Working Group. And I'm very concerned about these. And uh, I'm also concerned about uh, the composition of the working group. And I know that the county is considering it a done deal. Uh, but this was done in a very secretive manner. Uh, 12 meetings. Uh, the public was not invited to these meetings. Uh, and when I CPRA'd uh, recordings of the meetings, even though I was told that all had been recorded, I received only four recordings. Uh, this was explained to me as a technical glitch. There had been a technical glitch. Um, I think the composition of the, the, the board itself, uh, the working group itself is really problematic. As I've said many times, and this was, has not been reported in the Marin IJ, um, there, there were no Latinos from the canal. There was apparently only one Latino on the entire 15-person working group. Uh, there were no black residents of Marin City on the working group. And they created, uh, they created a, a, a memo with very, very watered down, I mean, extremely weak proposals, so weak 
that Jamie Scardina came in and said, these are terrific, um, thank you. He actually thanked the working group. Uh, that, that should raise some questions. I wanna tell you why this is important. Civilian oversight has failed in every county and municipality where it's been attempted. And to ignore that is, is to, to put people, the most vulnerable communities at risk. Uh, yesterday, I received word uh, that the 24th person since January of 2023 died in the custody of the Los Angeles Sheriff Department. And I have to keep making the point because it's not getting through to liberals in, in this county that uh, since civilian oversight was incepted in Los Angeles, the, the, the number of people dying in custody has increased dramatically every year. Thank you. Thank you, okay. Is there anyone else in the chambers who wishes to speak? Not seeing anyone, let's go online. Rodrigo, can you unmute yourself? And then to uh, boards, and the one that really concerns me a lot is the Human Rights Commission because that one there is the one that is the only one that the, the people are supposed to be able to uh, go to for the resolution of their problems dealing with discrimination and racism. And when you put in three people from Novato, then you put in, you're putting in the viewpoints of Novato, not the people of the canal, not the people of Marin City. You're putting, the few, you're putting in hand-selected people who don't really relate to what's going on and so you're using them to rubber stamp all your approval for the county, which is just an absolute fraud. And then again, as I mentioned yesterday, is that the, the same names re are, are reoccurring on boards. So you're using these hand-selected people to be on boards to represent your viewpoint. You have really not made any attempt to find people from, uh, the, from the areas that are actually uh, suffering they need your your support. Not like not like San Francisco that actually has a working group. Not like Sonoma that has a, a group that actually goes out to uh, deal with the people. So the one from San Francisco is the one that said that blacks uh, will should be compensated uh, five million dollars a piece. That is so far fetched to Marin that they can't even get uh, people to represent them their areas that in a way is just simply a fraud and you keep on doing this over and over and over again and so everything that uh, Eva is doing is nothing but exposure to, to your dirty laundry of, of using the same people to rubber stamp approvals on such things. You have no validity to any of your surveys. Uh, you really, they cannot stand any scrutiny. Show them, show the, show the, the survey information to the people. Thank you. The next speaker is Clayton Smith. Please unmute. Uh, since we're talking about money in this uh, week, I thought it would be wise to discuss what is going to be unfolding in July, which is the FedNow program, which is a radical centralization of the financial industry by concentrating all of the clearing mechanisms 
that uh, occur between banks and all the companies that do business through banks uh, through the Federal Reserve. And it will become a monopoly provider of transactionality, financial transactionality going forward. And this is actually beginning next month. Um, this uh, also pretends because they will be, uh, this is something I wrote, we have to remember that the Fed is a privately owned enterprise. And so will all the data that is embedded in every one of our individual transactions will be now registered with the Fed. Since the data is the mother's milk of the uh, artificial intelligence industry, I think we should consider all the competitive advantages that it, it gives the Fed and to those who have special access to all that information, all that data. We're seeing the, uh, coming the end of privacy. We're going to be seeing now the unveiling of a kind of digital feudalism. And it is anticipated by most experts that the banking industry, as we know now, is going to pass away. The large community diversity of banks and financial institutions and is going to soon be concentrated at the end of this process and six major institutions will govern us all. Thank you. President Peters, there are no additional speakers in the queue. Thank you. We will continue now with the first item uh, in our continuous improvement and strategic planning. Welcome, Dan. Good morning, board members. Dan Eilerman, Assistant County Administrator. And we do have a PowerPoint, if we could pull up the continuous improvement and strategic oh, Thank you very much. So uh, good morning. It's a pleasure to see you this morning. I'm going to pick up where uh, Jamila Jordan left off yesterday. Um, you heard Jamila Jordan, our equity director, speak about uh, equity as a central and core component of our continuous improvement efforts. And she spoke about the race equity um, budget tool and uh, the race equity action plan and participatory budgeting. And I'm going to speak this morning a little bit more broadly to continuous improvement as an umbrella management framework inclusive of race equity and how that's informing our strategic planning efforts. So um, I'm going to start with um, where we've been. And um, you know, this is kind of an agenda or overview. And I'll speak today to the county's mission, our countywide goals, and the board priorities, and how this is the foundation for continuous improvement and strategic planning and our annual department work plans, which then align to those goals and priorities. Then I'll talk about where we are, um, which is continued development of our Marine Compass Performance Management Program, and that's designed to measure key outcomes and inform priorities. And you see the logo uh, toward the top right of the screen there. Um, I, I like the symbolism of the compass leading us to our true north, and um, I think as we go into this further today, that's what we're trying to develop is the true north for the county organization for the years ahead. I'll also speak briefly to our open data portal. That's where we report our um, key data and efforts. And then um, our focus today is going to be on where we're headed in terms of next steps. So um, speaking with the end in mind, um, I wanted to talk about what our overall goal is. And that is the consideration of a new countywide strategic plan to help align um, our board priorities and goals with a common vision, mission, and values for the long term. 
And I thought it would be worthwhile to spend just a minute on kind of what are the differences um, there. So we've had a county mission for many years, and, and a mission is really about your core purpose or core activities as an organization. It's, it's what we do. Um, and then our management um, responsibilities to ensure that we're delivering the right services to our community, our customers um, with excellent value. A vision, on the other hand, is more about future state. It's where are we trying to go as an organization? And what should high performance mean for Marin longer term? And then values are what really drives us to be um, high performing. So what's our core reason for being as a county? And so um, that kind of gives you a quick um, framework of, uh, I think, what we're trying to do um, in, in the coming months and coming years. And you've heard Matthew talk a lot about integration. And, and so our focus really um, for the past year and I think going forward for the next couple of years is better integrating those continuous improvement efforts. So that includes Marine Compass um, and race equity with the budget and our daily work. Um, toward a new post-COVID cycle of continuous improvement with race equity at its core. So our goal is to align those work plans and initiatives with community outcomes and goals to focus on what we're trying to improve. So um, we want to continue developing our Marine Compass um, program to track our progress and to learn and to inform our budget and operational priorities. And as you heard Jamila speak to yesterday, um, we want to utilize the race equity budget tool to integrate equitable considerations into not just our budgets, but also to our policies, processes, and practices. So stepping back and providing a little bit of context, I wanted to talk about uh, for the last 10 plus years where we've been as an organization in terms of strategic planning. So um, you know, some of you will remember the Great Recession of 2008 and 9, and how the county went through a long-term restructuring plan back then. It was a $50 million ongoing um, deficit and the county organization really pulled together to figure out how we would restructure as an organization to provide our core services. And once we recovered from that in 2015, um, the board adopted a five-year business plan. And that lasted through 2020, and that was really an effort to um, align the organization around improving processes and um, improving our internal structure so that we could deliver excellent services to the community. And then in 2017, we introduced the High Performance Organization Framework. That's where continuous improvement really became part of the county nomenclature going forward. Um, it talked about um, engagement with the, the community, but also your employees and relying on the employees um, throughout all levels of the organization because they actually do the work. In 2018, um, we did a community survey that affirmed our top board priorities. Um, I'll speak to those in a minute. And currently, we're actually, um, we just closed um, our most recent 2023 community survey, and our consultants are actively pulling together all that data into an analysis, and we plan to return to your board in August um, with a workshop on those results. In 2019, um, we launched the Marine Compass program. That was kind of a reformulation of the uh, Managing for Results program, and that included our new open data portal. And then in 2021, um, we had the two-year action plan, which kind of followed the five-year business plan. Um, and we'll be coming back to your board in October to report on results around that and included um, um, initiatives around diversity, equity, and inclusion, innovation and change, and um, growth and development among our employees. And you heard Jamila yesterday speak to the Race uh, Equity Action Plan. And then in 2023, our focus this year has been working with all 23 of our departments on a new continuous improvement focus um, going into this year. 
So in terms of where we're at, um, you'll see I've introduced here at the top left what I'll call a key um, to the county's current um, management structure, so to speak, our, our strategic planning um, foundation. And, and this might be helpful as we go forward and talk about other examples of strategic planning from other organizations. But uh, boiled down to its simplest, we have a countywide mission and we have department missions for each of our 23 departments. Um, from there, um, we develop four countywide goals, um, six countywide priorities. Departments um, work with your board um, every March and develop initiatives for the coming year. And those initiatives align to those priorities and goals. And then Marine Compass is designed to track um, how well we're doing with those initiatives. And so starting here, you can see that the mission of the County of Marin is to provide excellent services that support healthy, safe, sustainable, and equitable communities. And from that mission, we've derived our four countywide goals. Um, they start here with healthy communities, safe communities, and uh, sustainable communities. And then a, a few years ago, we added equitable, equitable communities. And so those are the four countywide goals around which the organization tries to align. And here on slide eight, you see our countywide priorities. These will look very familiar. Um, the first five priorities, again, were um, vetted by the community as part of our 2018-19 community survey. And um, we're anxious to see the results of the 2023 community survey later this summer um, to see where the community really feels our focus should be in the years ahead. Um, we also added recruitment and retention uh, a couple of years ago as more of an internal priority um, designed around um, the post-COVID um, organization, ensuring that we could recruit and re uh, retain our employees. Um, so Marine Compass is our performance management program. It's designed to foster a culture of continuous improvement and learning. Again, work starts with that county mission and department missions. The a county then works to align meaningful strategies and measures to one or more of those four countywide goals and to those six countywide priorities. And then we measure and report our progress, emphasizing quality of data over quantity in recent years. I think it became um, important to the organization that we focus more on um, quality, compelling data um, uh, instead of uh, losing the forest for the trees, so to speak, with uh, too much measures, too much data. Um, and here, this is what I'll call a decision funnel. Your board has seen this before, but this is kind of a visual representation of our continuous improvement program. So you see here, um, this is where race equity and compass and, and our budget um, intersect. And if you think of it kind of like a three-legged stool, if one element, one component is not working well, then the cycle of continuous improvement um, you know, is gonna require improvement. So race equity, Jamila covered uh, really well yesterday. That's all about, um, aligning resources to our greatest needs, ensuring equitable outcomes, then measuring the results and learning. And um, Compass, um, it includes our open data portal for the community and for uh, departments internally. It's about collaboration and learning. It includes business process initiatives, and we measure those results and we learn from them. And then the budget is um, where we actually decide what it is that we're gonna do. And that becomes the department initiatives, and we work with those departments to ensure they align to those countywide goals and those countywide priorities. And then this is a cycle of continuous improvement, and the end result is doing the right things well with a lens on equity. That's kind of the motto that I like to think of when we speak of continuous improvement. Um, but what does that mean? So. Um, Doing the right things well with a lens on equity, I think it means a few things. It means integrating um, race equity, marine compass, and budget. 
to apply resources where the needs are the greatest, especially among communities of color and immigrant communities. Um, and you heard uh, from Jamila yesterday around the race equity as being a core of that continuous improvement program. I think doing the right things well with a lens on race equity improves external accountability. Um, so the data that we report to the community helps to illustrate the value of their investments. It improves internal accountability by ensuring that uh, department initiatives align, those work plans align to our goals and priorities. And then um, we continually want to improve our Marin Campus program to track progress with data and communicate those key outcomes and develop both internal and external dashboards. And so I'm gonna provide quickly a couple of examples here. Um, any member of the community can go to data.marincounty.org and see our Marin Campus program online. This is a quick screenshot that um, uh, illustrates what it's about. It includes community indicators. It includes um, information about all of our departments and the work that they do. And it involves uh, departmental collaborations as well. And we heard yesterday about Clean Slate, um, an excellent example of uh, interdepartmental collaboration. Um, same website, data.marincounty.org. Um, you see our Marin Open Data Platform. It's kind of the centerfold of the um, continuous improvement program. And in each of those blocks, you can dive into and see um, data that um, will be of interest to the community and to our departments. It's where we learn, it's where we share and collaborate. And um, you heard Jamila yesterday speak to um, um, equity indicators and creating an internal dashboard for um, thinking about our race equity budget tool and how do we align resources and um, change our um, budget priorities and our processes and our practices. Um, this is where Jamila was talking about. So um, looking at that equity and diversity dashboard at the bottom left, um, that's where we wanna develop um, additional equity data uh, to share that with the community and with our other departments. And um, ideally with our other departments, we're able to access data um, that certain departments may be more of a subject matter expert in and other departments can glean that data, can leverage that data to then target um, you know, their initiatives to communities of concern. Um, an example, um, we're, we're trying to collect data to tell a story. And so here's an example from our public health team. It's a really good team to focus on because they have um, you know, epidemiologists on staff, they're used to working with data. And so this is an example of non-fatal overdose data and you can see in the data, um, we track it by year, we track it by month, um, kind of in the bottom row, we track the type of data, or, or the type of uh, non-fatal overdose, and then um, we can track it by different demographic um, components. And so why is a non-fatal overdose and tracking that data important? The public health team has cited that as a sign of unsafe drug use and a risk for future overdoses. And so being able to track that then helps to provide insights to guide their prevention strategies. And then um, one of their um, prevention strategies is outreach. And so this is an example of using data to um, inform efforts um, to target communities of concern and um, then to change practices. And again, you continuously learn from doing that. Just one other quick example um, available on our platform. Um, we all are quite familiar with the COVID-19 um, pandemic emergency. And so looking at COVID-19 hospitalization uh, rates and census is something that the public health team became very used to and shared with the community. And by um, being able to track that data, it helped them to align their um, solutions to areas of need 
to understand where issues were occurring and to target and project um, you know, their um, treatments. And so kind of looping back to where we're headed, um, looking at a new strategic plan to serve as a North Star for the county organization. And so we, we wanna build on the prior efforts that I've discussed briefly um, this morning. We wanna continue with that integration of continuous improvement, including Marine Compass, race equity, with budget process and our daily work toward a new post-COVID cycle of continuous improvement with race equity at its core. So I think ultimately that's the goal of where we're trying to go as an organization. We wanna leverage all the internal engagement we've done in recent years from the five-year business plan to the two-year action plan, um, employee surveys, but with a new focus going forward on community engagement. Um, and we wanna start reviewing best practices this summer or fall um, toward development of a potential new countywide strategic planning process. And um, it, it's not that we're gonna focus on just a few examples, we're gonna look more broadly, but um, I think we will wanna focus on counties, um, particularly California counties. Um, you know, given the, the, the unique responsibilities of counties. So some models that we're looking to, um, as your board knows, we have seven comparison counties that we tend to compare ourselves. Um, um, we're um, similar in a number of ways, and we like to make sure that uh, um, we're competing and producing similarly. So San Mateo County um, adopted a shared vision 2025. Santa Cruz County has adopted what it calls Vision Santa Cruz County and Santa Barbara County adopted uh, Renew 22 as its plan. And so those are three examples of California counties. All three of those are among our seven comparable counties. And again, it's not that we're gonna limit to those counties, but um, you know, those are really good examples. And I think what we'd like to do this summer is uh, take a team of CAO and um, IST and actually go visit these counties learn um, what they learned as they developed their strategic plan processes, what were the pitfalls, what went well, and um, you know how are they performing going forward as a result of that strategic plan. Um, so learn from their examples and then bring something um, back to your board um, later this fall, um, possibly December. Um, so just looking at one example, San Mateo County, again, theirs is called Shared Vision 2025. So, um, their shared vision for 2025 is for a healthy and safe, prosperous, livable, environmentally conscious, and collaborative community. So thinking before to like what is a mission, it's about what you do. This is a vision about where San Mateo County is an organization and a community wants to go. And so they developed a long-term strategic plan that reflected community goals and priorities. They did a lot of engagement with their community. They asked, where are we now? Um, where are we going? What do we wanna do and be? And what do we wanna look like? And they ultimately developed five community outcomes. That's what they call them as community outcomes and then aligned to those in nine community impact goals. And here on slide 19, you can see an overview of what that looks like. So um, you can kind of five community outcomes similarly to the Marine counties for countywide goals. But if you see here, um, what they're looking for in terms of outcomes are a healthy and safe community, a prosperous community, a livable community, environmentally conscious community, and a collaborative community. So those are their overreaching outcomes that they're trying to achieve over the long term. And then below each one of those goals. So those goals, um, it's two each in the first four and then one um, community act impact goal for collaborative community. Um, those are um, 
further examples and targets for departments to align their initiatives and their efforts to accomplish those community outcomes. And so that's how their structure works. And um, on slide 20, you can see they have a performance dashboard um, where they uh, report and track their community impact measures. So they have an external dashboard, um, like Marin has the open data portal. They also have internal dashboards, which is I think something that uh, we could probably do better going forward to make sure that we're sharing internal information among county departments that they use to actually make management decisions that may not be quite as uh, compelling to the public as the outcome data that's part of the Marin Open Data Portal. But uh, another a really good example of how a long-term um, strategic plan um, utilizes a process and a discipline to arrive at community goals. And you can see it towards their line of sight um, is how they align their goals throughout the organization. And you can think of that somewhat loosely as similar to the key that I discussed earlier from the vision um, drives the county government goals, which then drive agency and department goals, and then division and program goals, and employee goals. So we have the same operating structure, but that gives you a good example of um, how San Mateo formally is um, running its program. And so um, a strategic plan and concept, uh, what is it? Um, I like to think of it as a public policy blueprint aligning board priorities with a community vision for the long term. So this is an effort where kind of leveraging on all the internal engagement efforts that we've done and also some of the external um, engagement with the community that we've done, it's an opportunity to unite the community, the board, our staff around a common vision and mission, outcomes and goals. Now this is something that's probably gonna take a year to develop. It's, it's a kind of a discipline um, that you go through and um, in some ways, the struggles it's done reward. It's something that the organization can unite around as it develops. It's something the community can unite around as it's developed. But the ultimate goal is to align those annual work plans initiatives with those community outcomes and goals that would ultimately be decided through that process. And then we continue with Marine Compass to track progress, to learn and inform our operational priorities. In terms of implementation, um, this is kind of, you break it down into its simplest component. Um, the budget, which we're of course here this week to, to review and, and consider approval for, the budget is the what we do. Um, and we use our strategic plan goals and outcomes to inform our BOS priorities. And the operational plan is how are we gonna do what we say we're gonna do. And Santa Cruz County is an example actually has a separate document called its operational plan. In Marin County, um, it's really part of our budget process and it's the initiative aligning to our countywide goals and to our board priorities. But um, the operational plan you can think of is our BOS priorities informing those annual department work plans. So that's the how. And then the continuous improvement or performance measurement is how well. So if you set your goals and you decide what we're gonna do and the operational plan is how you're gonna do it, the continuous improvement and performance management program is analyzing how well you're doing it and you're learning and then you're recalibrating based on what you learn. So what is simple as that becomes a, a, an ongoing cycle where each budget um, you're continually learning um, and each year you're deciding what it is you wanna improve and then it's part of your daily work. It's not just a once a year exercise. And so ultimately in terms of next steps, um, we anticipate coming back to your board for a workshop in August for the results of the community survey. 
thus far, what we've heard from our consultant is we've had an excellent response. We're expecting a margin of error of about three and a half percent on the scientific component of the survey, and that's an excellent response. On the opt-in component of the survey, which we did in three language, English, Spanish, Vietnamese, we had, I think it was over 600, if not 700 responses. So again, another excellent response. So we'll work with our consultant this summer to pull that data together and then present that to your board and the community. Um, we'll come back to your board in October to complete the two-year action plan. And again, that's where, from an internal perspective, we're working around diversity, equity, inclusion and belonging, um, innovation and change, and then employee growth and development. And then um, we're gonna look at review, reviewing strategic plan best practices this winter. That's kind of after staff's had an opportunity to look at models, including some site visits to some of our California counties. And then um, we will be looking to do an employee survey in 2024 to get more internal data. Then all of those inputs can then inform potentially an RFP for strategic plan uh, consultant expertise, somebody who's um, got experience developing a strategic plan in the public sector, um, facilitating meetings with the community um, to glean goals and, and outcomes that we're looking for. And that might be something we could discuss in spring of 2024. So to wrap up, I do want to thank the um, Organizational Development Subcommittee of your board, Supervisors Rice and Moulton Peters. Uh, you provided um, excellent feedback to help develop this presentation, and um, I look forward to um, trying to answer any questions your board might have this morning. <coughs> thank you, Dan. Yeah. I'm going to see if there's any questions or comments on the part of the board. Anything? Thank you, Dan. Excellent presentation. Um, I was wondering if you knew or could tell us who's using the open data portal? Is it mostly, you know, where's that use coming from? That's a good question. Um, what I'd like to do is to actually work with IST to get some uh, information about who is utilizing that. I think our departments are using it, but some members of the community are using it. But I'd like to analyze this summer. Um, has that leveled off? Um, if it's leveled off, how do we increase the uses and development of that data? But that's really an ongoing um, project to continually add data, more compelling, more recent data, and to continually engage with our community and our departments. Thank you. It would be interesting to see what they're looking at to mm -hmm. address. Yeah. Um, and then as far as the new strategic plan, are you foreseeing that another five-year plan? Will it be 2030, or has that been determined? I think it's open, it hasn't been determined, but um, you know, I think any strategic plan should probably be for a minimum of five years in my view. Um, so potentially a 2025 to 2030 you know, time frame. so potentially a Marin County uh, 2030 vision. Thank you. Yeah, thank you, Dan. Um, I, have, I have the same question about the open data wondering how it, how well it's being used. Regardless, it's a place that's capturing data, but frankly, are we as an organization and as an, as an employee using it and also as a community um, taking advantage of it? Um, so thank you for more detail on that to come. I just think this is a really, um, it's a really good time for us to be doing this, um, launching the strategic planning process and really allowing um, the community and all the stakeholders in, you know, frankly, what drives the county and the county's work um, come together at a moment in time when I think we've come through a lot over the last, you know, few years and certainly 10 years. 
Um, and I think that community survey um, that was done is really going to be important, uh, is actually really critical um, part of foundation in terms of developing a strategic plan. So I really like what you've laid out. Um, it's been really helpful to me to see what sort of how other counties structure. Um, I don't think that, I think that, that our, our current plan and the way we do business is not too far off the mark at all, but it's a, a really good time to be um, re-looking at everything. And, um, and uh, those goals of healthy, safe, sustainable, equitable communities, I'm sure will hold true, but maybe with some more nuance. And I think we have a community that frankly has been um, thinking about and wrestling with and understanding um, the different kinds of challenges we face as um, as a, as as public agencies, but also as a community in general, and so I think it's a really important and exciting time. And I do think a strategic plan that's done well should actually hold true those vision, the vision um, and goals. Frankly, should hold for many years to come, even as different variables and uh, emphasis and in terms of challenges might change. Mm -hmm. The outcomes probably should hold. Pretty, pretty true. Mm -hmm. So, thank you. Thank you, Dan. Um, how often is the compass updated? Is that kind of an ad hoc project by project? I, I think it is more of an ad hoc uh, continuous update process. Um, so, one thing, for example, that we'll have to work on this summer, um, presuming your board adopts the budget, is looking at all those work plan initiatives. Um, where departments have developed a new continuous improvement focus and then um, morph those into that uh, portal so that we actually are tracking whether we're accomplishing those or not um, and setting smart goals. Um, so that will be one example of where we have to improve that, but um, I think our IST team um, is continually updating that with uh, core departments. Uh, but I think we need to have a more structured and regular um, um, involvement in that process going forward. And that's part, I think, of what our strategic uh, project management team, you know, will be working on in coming months, and particularly as we start to head toward some sort of a strategic planning process. Great. Yeah, I was thinking whether it's an annual update or, you know, or embedded in the department work plan, so it's not this mm -hmm. sort of, I mean, I know these things are onerous, <laughs> mm -hmm. and they can be a lot of work, but, but making it, sort of looking at some of the data on there is pre-COVID, which all of a sudden feels like it may no longer be mm -hmm. relevant um, or in need of updating um, right. in, and then some otherwise. And then I guess, do, so, the, so do we have an internal dashboard currently? I don't think we do. Um, and that's something that I think we want to explore with our IST team. Um, you know, so we have the um, open data portal and that is shared by our departments and by the community. But I think an open question is whether we need uh, a new or different technology for an internal dashboard. So that could include budget data. It could include um, you know, other, there's data that department managers use every day to help them make their decisions. And something like that, where it's uh, more easily accessible to the departments, I think would be really helpful um, so that they can update it and monitor it themselves without having to have um, an IT expert um, help them you know, update that data. So that is something I think we need to work on in, in the next year or two. And then I guess this is more of a comment than a question, whether on an internal or an external dashboard, just ag ag um, again, that we need to tell the data that 
shows we're not making progress mm -hmm. if we're not, and not just highlight the places. So I kind of was flipping through, you know, the housing one, and it says we met all of our arena goals for the last cycle. If you just looked at that, you'd say, you know, we're in a good place housing-wise, but we all know the text tells us, but we just need to make sure that, that people have permission to tell if the data is not working so that we can say what do we need to change and not. That's a really helpful comment. I'm glad you raised that. And um, it's, it's a continual challenge performance measurement, not just in Marin, but any organization, is working with our employees and our managers to know that the point of measuring performance is to ask questions so that we can learn. So um, it's never intended to be punitive. And so if we set targets, we want to measure our progress. And if we're not making progress relative to what we said, we want to ask questions about why. And so how can we recalibrate to do better? Um, so that's the continual challenge. And I think if departments here and understand that from your board, that that's your intent, um, that's certainly our intent as well. And we need to continue to culture the organization to, um, I think, to understand and absorb that. I, I agree. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So, Dan, I'm going to add some comments, and mm -hmm. I, I really appreciate your work on this. I agree with Supervisor Rice. This is a good time to do this kind of thinking. It's time. Um, something that I would like you to expand on when you come back to us is your point about um, doing the right things well. And it's reflected in San Mateo County's um, collaborative community goal, but this is, you know, excellence in service, which is in our mission statement and delivery of county services. And this is done obviously in, in conjunction with our department heads who are working on continuous uh, improvement. But, and it falls in my good government bucket about how we deliver services to our communities. And you know, are they streamlined? Are they customer focused? Are they responsive? Are they transparent? It's really, it's another part of the how. And I think uh, I would certainly in favor of adding that as another focus area for us and being intentional about that. Um, you know, we, we know that IT has changed service delivery now, that communications technology has changed how and, I, and I'm sure that uh, department heads all have examples of things that have changed allowing you to do um, work better or differently. I, I a recent example with um, um, Rosemary Gaglione, we just happened to be talking about the report of pothole software that then allows public works to do heat maps of where there are a number of potholes that indicate a bigger problem could exist underground. And so these are the kinds of things that I, I think are helpful and allow us to do our, our work better. Um, so a focus on the how of excellent service. And then a couple of other things. I like the idea of an operational plan. I agree with Supervisor Sackett that pulling this out of the budget could be helpful and more accessible. Um, I think we need to distribute county services equitably, and I'm glad that we're focused on that. And I also think we need to consider Marin County as the highly educated, highly engaged community that it is, and take that into account as we do this work. Um, we. We have a, a lot of people who want to comment on what we do and understand it, so being transparent and communicative is important. And then finally, I would just say I understood from the mayor of San Rafael, they've gone through a strategic planning process with an eye on um, city government 2030 or something. And I, it, um, 
Mayor Collin and, and city managerships, I know, do very innovative thinking, and so it'd be interesting to see mm -hmm. how they approach that issue. Uh, if there's no other comments. Can I just one more? Certainly. And Dan, I'm thinking about a lot of the comments we heard yesterday um, from members of the public and have been hearing around there's there's a lot of, um, I don't wanna say emerging needs because where they're recognized, we have an aging population, um, we know we have uh, workforce um, issues, pipeline issues in different sectors. A lot of this is that's related to housing, mm -hmm. but the degree to which um, a strategic planning process can really um, uh, look outward, forward, in anticipating how some of these really toughest challenges are gonna evolve over time uh, and frankly become more exacerbated unless we do something about them. And I mean, we can only control so much, but I think we can see a trajectory and, and I think the aging population is a really, um, is a really good example of something we can probably wrap our brains around there's data to really drive and inform what the challenges are going to be over time and I think that's going to be an important element to this as well thank you very much I'd add sea level rise to that climate impacts yeah, I think we could do like a context as a front end to the strategic plan that then gives sets the context for you know that 2030 you know what's going to what are the trends and emerging mm -hmm. issues and then that that sets the context and then, then our plan, you know, addresses that context. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, as we did yesterday, I'm gonna allow for, uh, offer public comment after the presentations we have this morning. So just so the public knows that, there will be an opportunity to con comment on those things. So thank you, Dan, very much for this. Let's go now to the five-year capital improvement program. Thank you, supervisors. Good morning. Good morning, Madam President. Good morning, members of the board. Uh, my name is Doran Hill. I'm the Public Works uh, Facilities Manager and uh, Facilities Planning and Development Manager, also known as the Capitals Projects uh, Division Manager. Um, I'm uh, happy to present to you this year's uh, Capital Improvement Program briefing for fiscal year 2023 and 2024. Uh, we'll get started. These are probably familiar slides to some of you uh, who have seen the uh, Capital Improvement Program over the last few years. So uh, let's see. That, okay, thank you. Here's our agenda. Um, uh, county, we're gonna kind of go over the county uh, facility portfolio, uh, the capital improvement program, 
and, and its process, uh, recent accomplishments, uh, proposed projects for this coming fiscal year, 23-24, uh, emerging issues and top priorities, uh, new budget recommendations for facilities and one-time allocation for this coming uh, fiscal year, and we're going to uh, also talk about follow-up issues and next steps. So the county owns a number of uh, over 44 major buildings, uh, 1.4 million in square, square feet that house multiple staff and uh, public um, uh, services. Just to name a few, we've got the jail, four libraries, Marin Center, which uh, our fair is gonna be held here in just a couple of weeks with the auditorium, exhibit hall, uh, theater, concessions, and related facilities. Uh, there are six fire stations, two of which are shared by the sheriffs, I think Point Reyes and Marin City. Additional county facilities, major facilities, uh, health and wellness campus. Uh, we've got five buildings there, mostly H&HS services, uh, juvenile hall and related uh, probation buildings. Uh, not including pub stations, we have parks and open space facilities. Uh, fire lookouts, an airport, and other various uh, storage buildings. Uh, over half of the buildings that we have are over 21 years old uh, with needing significant repairs and upgrades. Uh, many of the systems have reached their uh, useful life cycle, and so we'll be talking about some of those improvements. Also, as part of our portfolio, uh, we have leased uh, properties and lease buildings. Uh, David Spear of the County Administrator's Office manages those, two of which are uh, general fund lease spaces, uh, which remain uh, a little over 14,000 square feet. We also have 13 non-general fund leases uh, with a little less than 46,000 square feet, which include libraries, child support, health and human services, and district attorney. And then we have four ground lease uh, licenses uh, depicted there on the right is just one example of that, the sheriff's uh, substation in Kentfield. So a little bit of background on the capital improvement program. Uh, once again, maybe familiar slides to some of you. CIP, uh, the CIP program is a subset of facilities uh, projects funding. The annual CIP funding is meant to maintain existing facilities and extend their useful life. Uh, most projects uh, on the top of the order or the top of the list of what um, meets the project uh, priorities are health and safety, uh, legal mandates, and deferred maintenance. Uh, prioritized uh, CIP projects are generally in the $60,000 to $2 million range. Anything less than $60,000 is what we consider uh, small projects. A little more background, major projects are generally funded separately. Uh, most project priorities are developed with individual department discussions and, and rating criteria. Uh, many times site visits and, and rough order of magnitude uh, costing are done with uh, the various uh, departments and their priorities. As you can see, annual funding over the few years have, have increased a uh, number of reasons, inflation, price of materials, and uh, 2008, we had a CIP budget of $4 million. Then we went to $5 million in 2018, uh, $7 million in 
21, 22, and this year, this coming fiscal year, we're at 8 million in funding for fiscal year 23, 24. The process on the program, uh, departments around April are sent a, a memo asking for a request for uh, projects that are priorities for them. They submit those uh, uh, request forms uh, to the CIP program. We inter, we collaborate with the departments, discuss their priorities, look at past year's uh, list of priorities and, and put that on the list. And then we used a project screening or criteria ranking where the these next 10 items are weighted and uh, we then prioritize projects. I'll quickly go through our 10 priorities. As I stated before, uh, removing or reducing hazards and threat to health and safety is number one. Legal mandates, uh, of course, is important and code issues uh, and upgrades. Um, we look at projects to improve the maintenance, the operational efficiency, uh, maintain the operational efficiency of systems and buildings, uh, prevent major repair and replacement cost. Projects that save energy and promote sustainability. Of course, projects that meet county goals and your board's priorities. Uh, provides aesthetic benefits to primary users and the public. Leverages grants, fees, and other non-general fund resources. Uh, promotes equity and improves services to our underserved communities. And part of phased or prior approved projects. All of these are considered as we look at uh, the new list of projects. So this has been, this is the second year of a two-year cycle. Uh, we started in 2022 and now we're in 20. 324 with 8 million in funding for the second year of the cycle. Uh, nine prioritized projects have been identified and funded. Uh, these three items are called ongoing funding items uh, make the list every year. We always have an accessibility projects uh, component, uh, funding, small projects, and non-reimbursable planning. Small projects, uh, 80 million this year. Uh, 1.6 million in accessibility and transition plan projects. By the way, all of these projects are detailed in the capital improvement book, an attachment with this presentation. And on page, I think it's uh, 11, uh, page 29 is where you're gonna find details of the objectives and descriptions of each of these projects. The capital improvement uh, Non-reimbursable planning, 400,000. Uh, one of our code and safety uh, upgrades, the jail isolation cells and air changing design, 500,000. Another safety issue, jail pod safety mesh system, 1.6 million. Lagoon park pathway, gap closure upgrade, a beautification and accessibility project, 500,000. Novato pathway, Bowman bridge improvements, 200. Jail sewer line replacement, this is a continuation of an emergency that occurred last year. Uh, we've got just a little bit more to do this coming year. Uh, Veterans Memorial Auditorium pit waterproofing, we'll talk a little bit more in detail about that. Uh, we've, we're doing due diligence. Uh, some of you may have even visited the site. Uh, the water intrusion has caused uh, uh, 
us to look at uh, more than just waterproofing. We've got to do some repairs, and uh, there may be some subsidence of uh, under material under the slab. Juvenile Hall, there's a number of deferred projects, mainly um, HVAC, heating, ventilation, and air conditioning upgrades. We're going to initiate uh, those projects and plan for that. Civic Center planner, waterproofing, $100,000. We've got leaking uh, uh, planners in the Civic Center. And uh, Veterans Memorial Auditorium parking lot improvements uh, out for bid. This is this additional funding needed to cover the, that, the project cost for uh, this project that's been on the list for a number of years. Here are our, just the sampling of our accomplishments over the last year. Uh, on page 11 of the CIP book, these projects will be detailed uh, uh, amongst other projects that we've accomplished, so like actually a long list. So here's just a sampling, uh, number of projects at 120 Redwood, siding repair, uh, Fairfax Library, besides the garden, we've done uh, life safety projects and HVAC projects. The General Services Administration Building, uh, major waterproofing, that's the building that houses our uh, radio shop and our um, um, auto uh, group and roads and our roads division. Number of projects at the jail, this is just list a few of them, accessibility projects, that sewer line emergency project was handled this past year, floor ceiling, uh, point raised fire, uh, numerous Upgrades, just depicted here, paint and shingle repairs, and the exhibit hall seismic uh, was finally completed in last fiscal year. Uh, we're now embarking on the Veterans Memorial Auditorium seismic upgrade. I, at this time, I'd like to uh, just thank our capital projects team. Uh, these, like I said, this is a sampling of projects. These projects are only happening with the facilitation of our 10, 11-member team at Capital Project. I just want to quickly name Paul Swallow, Mary Hobson, Cam Zaza, uh, Dave Vaughn, uh, Aaron Riley, Michael Shane, Tracy Holland, Mark Mancuso, Maya Lancor, and uh, our new summer intern, Arusa Suhail. Uh, they are the boots on the ground uh, that make this, this work, and uh, happy to have them, and I want to thank them for all their work. And at this time, I'd like to turn the program over to David Spear of the County Administrator's Office. Thank you, Doran. Uh, good morning, Board President and Board Members. I am David Spear, as Doran said, the Facilities Planning and Development Manager. <coughs> um, what I'm going to talk about are the emerging issues uh, that uh, was, was listed in the agenda and the top priorities for the county as one of your board's top priorities is county infrastructure. Um, so we, we appreciate the, the attention to this. <coughs> top priorities that we'll focus on in this presentation, uh, and that was referenced in yesterday's presentation by Josh and Matthew, our investment in the Civic Center campus and Veterans Memorial Auditorium of $30 million. We'll go that into a little bit more detail in a second. Uh, also, fire facilities are a major top priority of uh, our time, my time, and certainly the fire chief's time. Other priorities that we're working on include uh, health and human services facilities. Uh, we need to finalize a resiliency plan for the Civic Center. 
And then we have obviously have other general fund facilities that are funded uh, through the CIP or in future CIPs. Um, as discussed yesterday, the new budget recommendation is for one-time allocations for facilities of the Civic Center for $20 million and for the Veterans Memorial Auditorium of $10 million for next fiscal year. Um, we've had staff and others ask, where are these funds come from? I mean, and, and although this information may duplicate some of Josh's and Matthew's uh, information from yesterday, I think it's real quick just to go through this. Um, we have a general fund Civic Center campus reserve of $12.25 million, uh, which was increased by your board on the May uh, 2nd of over to add $7 million to that to a total of 12. And then uh, a, a transfer of $2.75 million from the general fund capital reserve to get to $15 million. And then the other $15 million is from existing, uh, I'm sorry, from uh, uh, proposed fiscal year 2324 uh funds. The, the uh, $20 million for the Civic Center, um, we worked with DPW and their team from maintenance and capital and management, and D they developed a list of priority maintenance projects for the Civic Center. Um, these listed here that I'll, I'll talk a little bit more deep detail were the top priorities to begin. Um, the list of the total list of projects estimated a total of almost a hundred million dollars in rough cost estimates. Obviously, we didn't go into detail of every project that wasn't the top priorities. The the first four listed here are to replace the obsolete and unsupported energy management system that will optimize the energy usage of the lighting systems and the HVAC, the heating ventilating, heating ventilation and air conditionings of the 470,000 square foot Civic Center facility. Second one is replace the obsolete manual utility selector switch at the main electrical circuit coming into the Civic Center. Interestingly, there's two major circuits that, um, and, and one or the other will, will power the Civic Center. And uh, if one goes down, the second switch would have to be manually uh, done. And so uh, we need to replace that. Third one is begin the initial phase of modernization of the over 60-year-old HVAC equipment to provide more reliable temperature control and energy efficiency. Um, estimated to cost over $65 million to complete, which will take place in multiple phases over f future fiscal years as funding becomes available. Uh, and finally, initiate the highest priority uh, lighting, exterior light around the Civic Center, which will take place in multiple phases, again, over future future fiscal years as more funding becomes available. Um, that's not, th those are just the highest priorities um, that DPW developed. We do have uh, a, a sort of a list of additional priorities in the future. Uh, we won't go through these in a lot of detail, but you can see that, um, you know, finishing the HVAC, skylight replacement, both the exterior and lighting replacement, uh, painting the building, uh, the lagoon waterline park, uh, water line replacement, that's a very expensive project. As Doran talked about, the GSA building modernization is a phase project. And then many other items covered by future CIPs. <coughs> For the uh, Veterans Memorial Auditorium prioritization, um, I'll go through these lists, but I want to thank uh, Rosemary and her DPW team have done some recent due diligence work 
that included drilling core samples, uh, mapping the walls and the floors, et cetera, via what's called LIDAR. It's sort of like X-raying the walls and the floors for where the rebar is located and the size of the rebar to ultimately to create as-built plans to confirm what was constructed. Obviously, the drawings are, are old, and what's, what's been found is that there's been some inconsistencies in they thought what was constructed and what's there. So before we can do anything, we have to you know, figure out what's exactly there, how it was built, and, and then we can plan and design a solution to find uh, for water pair, repair the drainage system, uh, and repa repair any structural uh, defects that we have. <coughs> uh, second priority is to initiate theater seating and lobby seating acoustical separation wall uh, to plan and design and then come up with an implementation plan. And then uh, initiate and plan for second floor accessible dressing room and restrooms for the performers. Um, additional priorities that are well beyond the scope of the uh, $10 million but our priorities uh, listed by cultural services are listed here. Um, those listed here are sort of generalization of specific project requests that many of you have been over here and heard uh, cultural services request for future priorities. Both Doran and I were on the RFP uh, process that the Marin Cultural Association, the nonprofit group, uh, formulated um, an RFP and put out and worked with a selected architectural firm that developed these priorities with cultural services and the Marin Cultural Association. So there are front of house, <coughs> meaning those types of improvements that will improve the audience experience, maximize the lobby area, and, and expand and modernize the restrooms. Back of house that will provide being able for the performers to get from one side of the stage uh, without having to go outside of the building. Improving all the production systems, and then an assessment of the mechanical, electrical, and plumbing systems, and then replace and repair and improve as needed. <coughs> uh, regarding the fire service item that I talked about earlier, uh, initial estimates to uh, upgrade our fire stations to modern standards range from 50 to 80 million. Uh, I'm guessing it's on the top end of that right now. Um, there's currently about 16 million in fire reserves set aside. Uh, by uh, Josh and, and the fire department. Um, as, you, as you all know, uh, right now we're in due diligence uh, investigations for a new uh, headquarter location at the former Geron San Geronimo Golf Course. Um, we're hoping to bring out the uh, environmental review document sometime this fall, um, but that work's going on. Um, and, and really until, until we determine you know how we're moving forward with that facility and that site. It will really sort of then uh, determine how we deal with the other fire facilities such as Woodacre and so on and so forth. However, there are, there are certain uh, a number of maintenance repairs and code upgrades needed in these other current fire stations in Point Reyes Station, Marin City, and Hicks Valley. And as we finish up our sort of due diligence on San Geronimo, we will be coming back with sort of a, a, a bigger plan for all of the fire stations and how we address those. So uh, follow-up issues, next steps for fiscal year 23-24. Um, so on the Civic Center, $20 million modernization uh, will develop specific project budgets and timelines, bring those back to your board 
uh, in later this summer and the fall. Uh, same thing with the veterans VMA, $10 million. $10 million. Um, we'll come up with the specific projects and budgets as I specified once the due diligence that's going on through the core sampling right now and other uh, due diligence comes on. Um, we'll work with the Public Works to explore additional construction management resources to assist in implementing the modernization uh, with Public Works. And then, as I just said, we'll come back with a five-year capital plan uh, for the fire department uh, pending analysis of San Geronimo. Before taking questions, though, I do want to thank uh, Matthew and your board for your support of investing uh, in, in this national historic civic center. Uh, that's really significant. Um, we just had a Frank Lighter Wright Conservancy me uh, meeting, and Supervisor Milton Peters was there, and we uh, emphasized to them that this is a huge commitment by the county to this facility. Uh, again, it's a, literally a worldwide known uh, landmark. Also, I'd like to thank Jeff Wong of our CAO's office for putting the CIP document together that you've all got in your box, and it's also online. And also to um, thank uh, Hamid and Dorn and, and work for pulling together the information, working with the other DPW departments in that. And so with that, um, turn it back over to you, and I know you said you'll take questions later. Uh, well, we can do questions now. We'll take public comment later. Uh, okay. Are there questions on the part? Eric, would you like to start? Uh, uh, just uh, two questions. One, um, just kind of general, kind of higher level. This is my first time going through the CIP here. So if I understand kind of baseline CIP is usually seven, eight million dollars a year. Uh, and then this year, uh, because of some uh, budget savings, we're being able, being able to make some pretty historic one-time investments in capital. Uh, that baseline seven to eight million, how, how short is that of really addressing our long-term capital needs ongoing? And uh, do, we, do we need to consider long-term a, a structural change to ensure that we are taking care of all of our facilities? Um, well, as, as I mentioned up front, I'll take a first shot at, that, at answering that question. I mean, just within the Civic Center alone, DPW's estimated that with this, within this 60-year-old facility, there's probably around $100 million just within the Civic Center alone uh, in the Civic Center in, in Lagoon Park. Um, that doesn't include the rest of the, you know, the rest of the county where there's um, estimated to be, um, you know, close to possibly $200 million. Again, until you really get down and, and get into the details of, you know, specifying projects right now, it's sort of cost estimating based on DPW's professional uh, estimates. All right, well, I'll start big picture and then we'll end with the annual CIP. So, you know, part of this context is the county's over uh, the overall um, finances and us being a slow growth county. And what, what one of the things we've always tried to do is think long term. And we've done in the past a fiscal report card. And, um, and you know, starting off, you know, early, the, the challenges that were the, around retiree obligations. Uh, as I mentioned uh, in March, you know, we have more retirees than current employees, so structurally, as a slow growth county, we need to make sure we have that under, um, under control. And, you know, uh, so that's been, you know, one of the focuses. Next, we focused on the road investments. And so over time, we've increased the road investments, so we're getting $8 million a year. And then uh, capital is, is something that started at $2 million in the early 2000, the CIP, 
and when we have the funds we have increased it and i think it's fair to say we could do more than eight million you know when we can have a balanced budget to achieve that and so it's probably a combination of increasing the annual c i p when we can afford it as well as looking at like a bigger investment on a one time basis and that's really why we've come to you with the recommendation on the thirty million is that it's generally a record recognition that with these buildings being sixty years old we're not going to solve the structural modernization issues that we need to address with an eight million dollar annual c i p that we prioritize around health and safety issues and so really seeing the one time money that we've had over the last two years as an opportunity to be the first step in you know addressing a hundred million dollars worth of deferred needs over the next two to three years and then being in a position to then take the next steps you know i know supervisor redoni has mentioned over time the you know we do have the ability to do longer term debt service we those projects need to be ready to be implemented within three years and so part of i think what we would be doing is doing this this project over the next three years and then really getting at you know what are the next projects and do those get funded with one time monies or do they get funded with that services but this is kind of the start of a civic center modernization effort but the short version is yes you know when there is money available increasing the c i p would be a good ongoing investment and is needed given our our structural needs around facilities i appreciate that i'm glad that we're able to do that this year and have for the past couple years and hopefully we find ourselves in this position again where we have you know larger one time funds and we can allocate them towards capital but i think this past this past year i don't know we're going to have this opportunity every year and yeah how do we make sure and this is not unique to marin this is every public agency throughout the state and taking care of deferred maintenance so i appreciate that the second one with regard primordial of comment on on the v m a and the ten million modernization specific project budgets timeline summer fall of twenty twenty three both supervisor rice and i work on that subcommittee i think the the sooner that we can put out the plan or the even if it's in sort of the ideation phase i know some of the user groups have been waiting on that certainly we want to get it right we don't want to over promise and under deliver but however we can communicate that to the groups i know would be well received especially as the v m a is going to be closing any day now yeah thank you and we'll continue to work with your board subcommittee on the v m a and develop those project budgets the prioritization before we come back to the full board in summer and fall with the specific recommendations i appreciate that and thank you to rosemary i did get a chance to head over to the v m a was it last week or the week before to look at some of the coring and and the the groundwork that was being done there to really kind of see i guess under under the foundation and in the dirt there i'm glad that we're doing that that work it was uh was an interesting and fun tour appreciate it yeah doran david thank you so much um i have a couple questions so with regards to the annual c i p versus sort of our major projects program do um and i'm looking at slide eight and nine where you have the sort of project screening criteria and rankings do we do we use the same screening ranking system for both annual c i p and major projects or how do we differentiate there and then i'm thinking primarily about the major projects 
um, how sort of that community survey, community input, uh, let me see what number was it, uh, meets county goals as promoted by BOS priorities, which are informed by the community, to what degree that sort of plays into um, our decisions about specifically major projects. So I, I think uh, the, the, way, the way I look at it is that um, the CIP is kind of annual ongoing maintenance. Like I said, a lot of it is around health and safety, making sure we're maintaining that. And generally speaking, these bigger, you know, like these bigger challenges could take up the whole CIP. And so those we need to kind of be aware of. And, and one of the things that we try to do is um, anytime we're looking at a, a major building reconstruction is not just simply replace it as it is, but then use it as an opportunity to relook at like what's the long-term use of this facility and, you know, and so like the VMA is a good example of that is where I think we're, we're having discussions about what are the right priorities uh, as we think of this building over the next 20 years uh, with a more significant investment than just a health and safety improvement. Uh, same thing with uh, fire, you know, looking at that. I mean, I, we, once we know where we are with uh, San Geronimo, I think that we can have a good five-year capital improvement plan. As David said, that's probably going to be $50, $80 million. Uh, I think that could be a combination of one-time money as well as bond financing. But, but part of it is you have to have real clarity on, you know, what that long-term investment makes sense. Because if we weren't doing that, we would just you know, rehab Woodacre in the same, you know, just keep doing Woodacre in the same way where we've really tried to look at, you know, what are the long-term needs of the community and if we're going to make a significant investment, you know, what is the plan that really makes sense for the community for the next 20 years, not simply to replicate what we're doing currently. Right. And those are bigger investments than just the, what we see on a, the CIP on an annual base, basis. Yeah. And I am thinking, um, and, and what I'm clarify here. Did I hear you right, uh, David, that the, or maybe it was Bone, I'm sorry, the HVAC redo in the Civic Center was going to cost $65 million? That's That's correct. Or estimated? Yeah, we've got, uh, uh, Kitchell is one of our consultants that have done a, a pretty exhaustive, comprehensive uh, review and assessment, and uh, they've actually separated about seven phases uh, so this building with uh, systems that are 60 years old, they are, they have reached their useful life. They are being uh, band-dated, as it were. And so we have a plan for some of the major priorities. Uh, we, we've prioritized what needs to happen first. And so the first year, there's basically we've got a $10 million uh, uh, set aside for a sequence of priorities to upgrade the, the HVAC system. Okay. Uh, because it's that amount, we're, we can do it over several years. And this is an item that we can't walk away from, as you said, it's being band-aided. Um, but to the, I think one of the last comments that was made with regards to the Civic Center, this building and campus, and this building specifically being a worldwide known landmark. Um, and I, I, I believe we leverage its, its that Renown and its uh, protection as a deterrent, heritage, uh, hopefully leverages outside monies um, because it is quite a, a building to maintain, uh, especially after 65 years. 
So anyway, um, I appreciate all this information and also um, the investment that we've made in recent years, in the last 10, eight, even going back 20 now, just be so much more intentional because there was a lot of deferred maintenance and that uh, it is easy to walk away from maintaining facilities, um, but you definitely pay for it in the end if you're not trying to keep up. So uh, anyway, thank you. Yes, David and Dorn, thank you so much for the report. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about included in this is any greening opportunities like microgrids and things, and has that been built into the cost structure, taking advantage of green technology, greening the, greening the building, oh, greening, greening. and uh, things like microgrids or other things like that. So. Well, we are certainly, microgrids are expandable. We're looking at completing our emergency backup power uh, that we've established since the twen uh, 2019. We've worked on a number of buildings, and the Civic Center is up next. And what we have is the ability to add to the system, uh, to add solar later if that's possible, to add uh, uh, electrical uh, battery backup power. So we don't have a full plan for that. We do have a preliminary plan to get backup infrastructure for the Civic Center, but everything is, in essence, you can add to it over time. So we don't have a full-blown plan, but we do know that we can add to our initial uh, uh, plan of uh, backup power, and we can expand upon it with microgrid grid and add to it. Okay, thank and, you. And, Supervisor, if I, I might add, the, the priorities that we listed for the Civic Center, the replacing the obsolete uh, energy management system, which manages and optimizes the energy usage, the lighting, uh, the heating, HVAC of the existing equipment. And then, obviously, all the new equipment that as we begin to replace the mechanical system, the HVAC equipment, that, that's significantly better in, you know, in energy usage than the equipment designed 60 years ago. And, and, and so, you know, um, and then, the exterior lighting, you know, right now, it, they're not on, um, they're all the old types of fluorescent and, and high energy usage bulbs. And so as we are able to do, you know, do that, we do look at the energy u energy management and the usage of all of these. And so, um, so just those highest priorities w are, you know, definitely do include uh, significant energy, future energy savings. Thank you. And it's part of what we have assessed, the $65 million, big part of that is uh, energy efficient, sustainability, and so all of that, before we actually implement the project, we will have vetted those things and brought that to the board in terms of what we've done in terms of due diligence for greening uh, of the upgrades to the uh, HVAC system. Terrific. Thank you. And then, uh, Doran, you have a small but mighty staff but we've just tripled your workload in, in one swab here with a new budget. So how are you planning to address that? Well, there, there was a slide that talks about us exploring. It says construction management, but really it's project management. Uh, we have to work out those details of because at, at this point, this small army can't do all of this. And so there are options that we have to put on the table, uh, whether it's outside resources or restructuring how we do things in the Capital Projects Division 
uh, something has to expand. Uh, we haven't detailed that yet, but that's where that line item talks about some solution to help us uh, uh, work with this, an additional $30 million on top of, it's not just $8 million in the CIP, we've got many other projects, library projects and fire projects that expand the actual work that the capital division does, so. Great, thank you. Don't have a definitive answer for you, but that's something that we're working on. Yep, thank you. Thank you for the presentation, and um, I really appreciate the collaboration between DPW Parks and Cultural Services, in particular on this last BCP request, to say how do we come together to address some of these short-term civic center needs, um, and that it seemed like for, for a while there it was kind of a hot potato, but I really appreciate that everybody came together and that we're seeing that happen right now. So um, just want to thank you all for that. Um, the, the slide eight and nine, the project screening criteria. So a couple questions on that. Is this in order, like is one the highest weighted and 10 the least weighted? No, not necessarily, okay. And then I guess my follow-up question is, when's the last time have we looked at, or have you all looked at those project screening criterias and weighed, are we still asking the right questions and giving them the weight? Um, what jumped out at me was, you know, aesthetics and underserved communities and how those are weighted um, as different criteria. So I just wonder, when's the last time we've looked at that comprehensively to say, are we asking the right questions and prioritizing the right way? Um, I'll take a shot at it if, if you, um, we, we added um, at the beginning of last fiscal year, the um, last three criteria, eight, nine, and 10. Um, again, they're, they're not in weighted order, we, they're just in order that we listed them here. And as Doran said, um, for example, uh, a health and safety uh, remover reduces hazards, has then additional weight to it besides, uh, besides say, then, then an, uh, an aesthetic benefit project. Um, so so each, each of those criteria then has a weighted criteria and that, that then is multiplied to get to a total score for each project, and that's how we that's how we score the projects. And um, DPW had brought in a consultant last fall, uh, Kitchell, to look at look at the criteria that we had, and really um, focused on you know are we doing it the right way? There's you know tweaks that you can obviously always always do and things, but as I remember, I, I think. For the most part, we got pretty good rankings from Kitchell, didn't we? Yeah, yeah, and and there we 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 do, and there are there are discussions about relooking at the criteria, especially when you think about asset management and what decisions you make when systems are failing, and so we, especially our, our maintenance, our facilities group, we pragmatic capital projects folks, we want to also put in there cost benefit analysis and those types of things. So yes, these are kind of over uh, uh, criteria, but we can also get into the nitty gritty of why we make a decision for uh, uh, changing out uh, mechanical systems. So I think we are gonna look a little bit closer at that. Thank you, I appreciate that. Because I think something like 
you know, cost-benefit analysis is, is a calculation, and equity and underserved is a little less quantifiable, but is a priority of our board, so to just um, make sure that, and, and I mean, even health and safety, I think of it as tripping hazards or liability, but when we're talking about underserved communities, it may mean something different, and so to just make sure that we're looking at that. Um, if we could look at slide 11, I just have a couple questions on what's a transition plan project and what's a jail pod safety mesh system? Oh, transition plan, you will notice uh, on page, pages after page 29 in the CIP book, we actually have listed a number of specific accessibility projects. Uh, transition, transition plans are suggested upgrades to handle things such as barrier removal, accessibility. It's all related to accessibility. Okay. And there's a report that generates that, and our accessibility program prioritized those things. So the list is long. Um, and so that's part of that, all, all accessibility, that transition, it's a plan, a report that we go through and knock off uh, each item. And then the, what was the other question? Jail pod safety mesh system. Yeah, we've got bars currently, and those are, or actually horizontal bars. You could, someone could jump over those bars. So what we're- So it's the second story. It's, got exactly, it. okay. it's the second okay. story where it's in essence a mesh to stop anyone from jumping over it. Okay. And then um, under the emerging pri priorities, it talks about resiliency investments. And is that, what does that mean? So this is on slide 15. So um, as, as Doran pointed out um, back after when, when the PS, original P public safety power shutoff happened, there was an extensive uh, report done by Public Works about what facilities were were crucial and needed, and 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 it's discussed in the CIP. I'll be happy to direct direct you to it later. But um, as Doran mentioned, we've we've um, done projects at 120 North Redwood, which is a Health and Human Services facility, uh, down at the Health Campus. We've added uh, two more buildings to backup generators because the Health Campus serves such a an important piece. And, and having it be operational during power shutdowns. And then um, in the Marin Center, um, thank you, the Marin Center we added uh, backup power for, for that because we've used that so many times during the fires, uh, during the smoke, and then obviously during COVID. And then the Civic Center is sort of the, the, the last that we've, um, th we've set aside some funds for it. And it's, it's, a, big, <laughs> it's a big discussion that uh, I think you know, public works and, and, and we want to have with your board and or your board subcommittee about options and, you know, long-term investment versus short-term strategies on, on how we back, how we, how we provide power here. And I know your board had a, a meeting earlier this year that um, I think the power went out uh, here. And so we need to figure out, you know, how do we deal with that? Um, the Civic Center, there's bigger issues. If, if you if you power some of it, who gets it versus, you know, powering the entire building. Obviously, we have our um, partners with the courts 
that have um, you know different organization, but they're housed here, and so we have to take them into consideration too. Because it sounds, it seems like resiliency centers is becoming a term of art in a lot of funding streams, and so I just wonder if some of these efforts are, you know, for example, a library becoming a resiliency center, does that is open us up to opportunities for other funding from state or local or utility partners? So I'll just throw that out there. And then Supervisor Rodoni and I are on this subcommittee of on, on microgrids, and just kind of get, speaking to this example that we heard last month from Fairfax, where they are trying to do a microgrid, um, and they have pieces of it, but they're talking about how they don't have an overall microgrid plan, yet the funding doesn't come in in the order that they would necessarily do it. So if there's grant funding, they may jump ahead. And so the question just to think about and not necessarily answer today is, should we be looking at sort of a microgrid resiliency comprehensive plan for the Civic Center so we know what we're trying to feed into and you know get inputs in and out so that you know and then back to the priority of leveraging grant opportunities again i think there's a mm -hmm. there seems to be a lot of federal funding for some of these things right now and if we know the bigger plan rather than just the pieces we're trying to replace, we may have opportunities for other fed, um, other funding sources if we you know know where we're going and then take advantage of those when they come in. That is a component of the analysis that we are and the options that we're putting on the table. Uh, not ready to bring it to the board, but we're talking with the CAO, our consultant. We're we're what are the options? And as you know, depending on what option you go with, it could. Uh, cost more money, and so we are looking at, we are analyzing that as, as we speak, uh, all of the resiliency options and a plan. And then just also, uh, there's the, the dollar amount, but also like how, what are we calling it, and what are we looking for so that we can take advantage of grant opportunities? Yeah. Well, I did want to mention on the grants opportunity thing um, that, you know, the state has money for resiliency centers, and we have applied for $10 million worth of funding for both the Marin Center and some of the facilities in Southern Marin as well to serve as resiliency centers and to get, you know. So I do, I do want you to know that we were aware of that opportunity and have applied. And then, um, as David and Doran mentioned, as we look at this discussion around Civic Center, I think thinking about the microgrid you know, as part of the analysis, and we do have, I think, approximately $5 million set aside in reserves from prior years to look at this question, but the full backup of Civic Center is beyond $5 million. So you're, again, you're gonna be making choices around you know, where are we going long term, and are there other resources available, and what makes sense to do now versus think about in the future. So. I think all your points are well taken. And I think, um, you know, the Fairfax is a much, much smaller project, but even, you know, to the extent there's an opportunity to sit down with their city manager and to say what are the lessons that, because they did share with us during those presentations of, like, things they wish they had done in other order um, that might provide some learning opportunities. Sure. We'll, we'll work with them. Uh, Rosemary and, and her department on doing that. 
I have just a few questions and comments. I wondered, as we uh, looked at Civic Center and the HVAC and lighting systems, um, are we anticipating some good operating savings when we install, and is that money that can be plowed back into our maintenance budget? That is what we are anticipating. Uh, we, we, that's a huge focus is energy savings. And uh, uh, there's a lot of waste now, mostly because of the systems being antiquated. And so there are options, uh, modern options for energy savings. And that's one of the primary focus is putting in efficient systems that will have a, 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 an actual savings. So what we're paying now, we want to reduce that with modernized uh, cost-saving uh, equipment. Does, does this work, as Supervisor Sacker was saying, does this kind of work lend itself to grant funding also? Yes, it, yes, it does. That's a part of what we're looking at, at also is uh, we work very closely with the Community Development Agency and the Resiliency and Dana Armanino. So those are all things that are, we're considering. We're always looking at grant funding, especially when you're talking about greening a building and energy efficiency, and those are our partners. Great. On, and on the VMA, I know at one point we explored a bond issue or some sort of measure to, and it, and it didn't uh, quite pan out. But is there is there still an opportunity for public-private partnership for some aspect of this, or is that something we should contemplate in the future? Yeah, you know, we have talked about that. I think, you know, part of it is, you know, Folks expect government to do the basics. So, you know, having the building be seismically safe and having, you know, that modernization happen, I think then sets the stage for how do we further enhance, like, you know, so the, you know, the county has prioritized general fund money to do these basic things. Um, and is there an opportunity to raise additional funds to go beyond that? And so I think once we've done that, I think there is an opportunity to start you know, reaching out and thinking of strategies to do that, where we're bringing in additional monies that's not supplanting what the county would do, but actually enhancing the level of the facility and the programming that would be available. So I do think there are future opportunities for that. that that's great. I guess I heard somewhere in, in Supervisor Sacker, excuse me, Rice and Lincoln, you would know, but that we're not, there's no plan to upgrade the, the audio uh, or the, the sound. In the, in the VMA, and, and I don't know how big a ticket item that is, but that was. It's on the list for future items. That's not the first set of priorities, but it is uh, on the slide for future upgrades. Definitely one of the things identified uh, by the cultural services, their, their uh, group, vendors. Yes, that's on, it's on the list. Just, is there the an order of magnitude estimate for that? I just I have no idea what we're talking about, but I'm curious. I can get that to you. Our, that's cool. The consultant, we're working with them. They did cost studies, and so I have we have that information, or we can develop that information. Sure. Uh, just don't have it on hand right now. And then um, last question I had is on a specific um, project, and Supervisor Sackett, you may know about. This is the Lagoon Park Pathway Gap Closure Design. Uh, and the question is something that uh, a, the community has raised about the um, the benefit that there would be if there was actually green vegetation around the edge of the lagoon as opposed to the, the rock riprap that we have in terms of keeping the, the yeast poop from going in the water and, and contributing to the water quality issues that we have there. 
And so I, I don't know if this uh, would apply to this particular project, but I, I just wanted to, is this kind of thinking on the radar screen for the lagoon at some point? Because it does seem to have ongoing water quality and algae bloom and stuff. Yes, it's on the table. Uh, we have stakeholders, obviously parks, cultural services. We're noting your comment. And so as we ramp up on the project scope statement, those are all the things that we're consider, considering. What are the opportunities? Uh, what are, like not only accessibility, not only beautification, but vegetation. So all of those things will be considered. And before we move forward, we'll have a project scope statement that all stakeholders, including the board, agree on before we move on to, to the next uh, phase of that upgrade. Good, good to hear. It seems like a reasonable thing to try and include. So um, that's all I have. Any other additional questions? Please. I was just gonna uh, quickly mention on the VMA, in, in our meetings with uh, cultural services, all the different user groups, the three main um, uh, improvements that we heard time and time again was the seating, uh, the sound wall, um, and the accessible dressing rooms um, is kind of the top three priority items. We did hear a little bit about the sound, but um, that was kind of secondary to those top three items, which I believe are all kind of included as near near term. Right. What is the sound wall? I need to look that up. Um, it's a separation wall between the lobby area and the seating, and it's going to create better acoustics, it's gonna have a better feel, especially as you expand the lobby for more uh, intermission type activities, separate, yeah, so it's a, an acoustic wall that separates the seating from the uh, lobby area. Yeah, got it, okay. Right, right now there's only a, a, a curtain, sound yeah. curtain behind the telescoping seats, and so people are in the lobby talking during a performance, it interferes obviously. Well, thank you very much. We look forward to your coming back with more details in the future. So, and again, we'll take public comment after County Roads. All right, Director Gaglione, it's all yours. Well, thank you, uh, President Moulton-Peters and, uh, and board. I'm Rosemary Gaglione, I'm your Public Works Director, and we're going to give you a brief overview of our road and bridge and traffic operations uh, accomplishments and our budget. I do wanna say that <clears throat> what, you, what you see at budget time are discussions about the capital program and, and roads and other infrastructure. Um, but there's a whole there's a whole team behind all of this supporting the folks that do this work, and just want to acknowledge them. And without them, none of these things would would come to fruition. Yeah. Which is that? Oh, that's not the beginning. I'm rolling up. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. The last slide and the first slide were the same. So today we're gonna talk about recent accomplishments, our pavement rehabil rehabilitation strategy, pavement and sidewalk repairs through an equity lens, multimodal projects were completed, 
our one-year investment plan, other traffic and transportation accomplishments, our grant-funded projects, and then next steps. We did receive a Western Region Association of Pavement Preservation's Excellence in Contracting Award in 2022 for our work on Indian Valley Road in West Nevada. Recent accomplishments, I'm gonna roll all of these. I won't list all of the projects because that would take a while, but these are completed projects. A couple will say active, but they'll be done next week. So they still, they still get to go on, on this last fiscal year's brag sheet. Um, Mr. Francis Drake Boulevard, Pierce Point Road to the Lighthouse House of Flat Project. Uh, retaining Wall and Lucas Valley Road, road uh, slope reconstruction on Valley Ford Franklin Road, our 2021 road sealant project, phase two, and uh, the 2022 road sealant project, which is not the same as our uh, rehabilitation project, which we also list on this page. And we did uh, quite a few dig out repairs. Um, folks may notice when you approach, sometimes at intersection, you'll have an area of the road that is settled, it's got a rut, and actually when vehicles come to a stop, there's an extra little bit of force that hits there at the stop bar. And we actually have to go in and saw cut those and, and dig everything out and put additional asphalt in to bridge that before we can do sealing projects. Uh, we, we, uh, for cycle 10, we did uh, pedestrian upgrades with rectangular rapid flashing beacons in various areas and a Marin City pedestrian improvements project phase one. And what you don't see are some 45 minor construction contracts that are under $60,000 that staff accomplished. So 36 active grant-funded projects. We completed six grant-funded projects, and the grant amount total was $3.2 million. Um, lots of accessible curb ramps. We did sidewalk grinding at 1,156 locations, and of course the rectangular rapid flashing beacon. We diverted over 27,000 tires from the landfill by using a uh, Cal Recycle grant to use those, those ground-up tires in our sealing projects. We've paved six miles of road, uh, sealed 52 miles of road, and then done interim condition improvement repairs on four roads. And what those are is when we do a combination of dig-outs, crack sealing, pothole repair, and then sealant on top of that. And we did almost a million square yards of roadway crack seal and we're behind. And this winter really did a number on our roads and so crack sealing is a big priority for us before the next rains. Um, asphalt based failure reports. We do a lot of retaining walls and that's because a lot of our roads like Lucas Valley Road, Bolinas Fairfax, they were originally constructed as cutouts in the hillside. And when we, when we lose those because of uh, large storms, it just doesn't make sense to try to dig everything out at the bottom and rebuild to the top. It's more cost effective and less environmentally impactful if we do retaining walls. Lots of uh, over 6,000 square feet of sidewalk, lots of curb and gutter repaired. And a shout out to the survey team. They don't usually get show up on these, but uh, they did replace or preserve over 70 monuments this construction season and assisted in 250 record of survey map reviews. You've seen this, uh, you've seen this graphic before. On the y-axis, we have pavement condition. Down at the, the bottom would be from uh, poor or failing all the way up to, to good. And on the x-axis, that is pavement life used. So as you get further out, you've used more and more of your pavement life. When your pavement is good, you can do treatments, you can do sealants and other things that will extend the life, and you can do those for three and a half to eight dollars a square yard. You get into the interim condition improvements, and those get a lot more, a lot more expensive. 
and interim condition improvements, we go ahead and we do some of those dig outs. We do additional sealing and, and repair things before we put seals over, uh, over that. Once you get into the poor condition, you're doing grinding and overlays, which is a lot more expensive to get up to $55 a square yard. Once you get into failure mode and you are rebuilding these roads, you are talking about $90 a square yard. And I'm getting old, so I'm gonna move this closer. Um, so we, this coming year, we will be doing 30 miles of preventative maintenance on our roads, uh, seven miles of rehabilitation, so grinds and overlays, and two miles of that interim condition improvements. Now, this graphic shows you the, the degradation curve for pavement. And the black curve is if you did nothing. You paved the road and you went ahead and you just drove on it and you drove the life out of it. And after 20 years, you'd be down into a failing PCI. You see the, the green, I don't know if you can, the cursor here, but you can get to a PCI on a new road over maybe 10 years, you get down to a PCI of 80. And if you do the right treatment, the right sealant, you can make that jump back up to 90. And then that will slowly degrade to a point where maybe you're at 75 or so and you, you're able to do another sealing project or other treatments and repairs and you extend that. So you essentially you're extending this degradation curve out. So on an annual cost basis to keep that road in good shape, it's a lot cheaper than waiting for the road to fail, which is the reason why we don't do a worst first. We go ahead and we try to take care of the roads that we have that are in good shape and then pull up some of those that need more work, and then of course uh, do some large projects where we're doing full depth reclamation because the roads have failed. In pavement and sidewalk repairs through an equity lens, we're currently working with Marin Water District to coordinate sidewalk and road repair and repaving in several Marin City streets after water main replacement. Uh, Marin Water was able to get six and a half million dollars in grant money to do water main replacement, and what we want to do is instead of having them go in and spend a lot of time and money and disruption to the public in doing uh, the required you know, repairs for something to stay in place for five or 10 years, and then us come in later and grind things up and redo, we're gonna come in right behind them. And this, this is, when you have efficiencies like this, you save money for everyone, which means you're also saving money for the ratepayers and you're reducing the number of, the amount of time that the residents have to deal with disruption. Then next year we'll begin to apply an equity lens to our overall pavement program. So we're working with the Office of Equity to select neighborhoods based on income levels and, and racial makeup of the neighborhood. We hope to come up with three or four candidate neighborhoods and then what we'll do is we'll talk to utilities and we'll make sure that they're not planning to come in in three or four years to do major work on the street, then what we'd have to do is wait and work and make that neighborhood go out to a later date and work with the utilities to sort of do the same thing, work together. But what we'll do at that time when we, when we find the neighborhood to, to work on, we wanna make sure this would be an area of the county that the average PCI of these um, disadvantaged neighborhoods or underserved neighborhoods is never less than the average PCI of the county at large. And when we go in there, the idea is to not just do the paving, but to look at the sidewalks and see, in addition to ADA improvements, which we always do, what is needed. Look at the street signs and see, are they paved? Do they, are they, you know, somebody hit the pole a couple of times, needs to be replaced. And if we have street trees there, should they be trimmed at that time and really, um, and really make things look better? And 
I sort of have a, a, a deeply personal feeling about this. I will, I will briefly share. I, I grew up in a low-income neighborhood, and it's really an, a, a sad feeling for a kid to go other places, and on the way home, you slowly become disappointed on, on your way home because the sidewalks are a mess and the streets are broken up, and it has an impact on you. So I don't want kids in Marin City or Marin County to go through that. I would like them to feel uh, proud of where they live, wherever that is. The bicycle and pedestrian projects that are completed, Butterfield Road Class T bike lane and intersection improvement studies and design work for Woodland and Auburn and Four Corners. Also did a lot of work in Marin City, a pedestrian, pedestrian improvement project. We did accessible curb ramps and crosswalks at Cole Drive at Drake, Donahue at Bay Vista, and Bay Vista Circle at Ridgeview Court. A number of places we installed rectangular rapid flashing beacons and did crosswalk improvements, such as North San Pedro Road at Schmidt, Woodland Avenue at Auburn, and McAllister at Stadium Way. Our traffic operations folks have been very busy, um, basically with only half the staff that they really need to have, and they still manage to keep up with our service requests and do field data collection, doing major, uh, doing analyses on major collisions, street uh, speed surveys, and volume counts. They were successful in getting a grant to upgrade our collision database, uh, and that will feed into other things that I'll discuss later, and a highway safety improvement grant for roadway safety improvements to the tune of $2.8 million. They've also done a number of corridor and intersection studies. They reviewed development plans. They did uh, studies for Bolinas and Stinson Beach parking, and they're updating the load local, they're going to be updating our local road safety plan so we take that updating of the collision data that feeds into the local road safety plan uh, and we pull improvements out of that, but then also that's gonna feed into our vision zero work that, we'll, that I'll talk about later. So what our one-year investment plan, the revenues that we're asking for is $8 million from the general fund, two million in road impact fee funds, uh, 2.3 million from Measure A and AA, Five point, almost 5.3 from SB1, which is the gas tax, for a total of almost $17.6 million, which we would spend uh, in the following ways. Approximately $13.6 million for our road program, $240,000 for bridge repairs not covered by the highway bridge program, $500,000 in culvert repair and replacement, $500,000 for traffic projects, $1.6 million for retaining walls, and almost $1.2 million for local match funds. Th these are funds, so the public knows, we leverage these monies against grant funds so that the county and the people of the county aren't footing the entire bill. Uh, for our bridge projects, our match is anywhere from 10 to 11.5% with the Highway Bridge Program paying the balance. So going forward, our Traffic Operations Division will continue the good work that they've uh, always done and, and seek another uh, highway safety improvement grant for the 2023 cycle. I believe they've been successful um, every year. Continue with intersection and corridor analyses, complete our local road safety plan, and do a corridor study on Tennessee Valley Road. One of the things that doesn't show up on here is a parking study looking at uh, Tam Junction. And then continue our participation with safe routes to school committees. So we, the federal, uh, federal Land Access Program completed uh, these two rows. We have TAM grants for Lameda Drive, Cole at Drake, Rectangular Flashing Beacons, uh, improvements in Marin City, and Wilson Hill Road paving. 
And here's a list of highway safety improvement program projects. Most of these, except for specific locations like the left turn pocket at Point Reyes and Petaluma Road and um, some high friction surface treatment on Panoramic Highway, these are things that we do all over the county, you know, enhancing pedestrian crossings and our, on our traffic signals and replacing guardrail and doing various sign upgrades and programs. I want to thank Congressman Huffman for uh, getting some funding through the bipartisan infrastructure law for the East of Francis Strait gap closure. We're also seeking funding for local bridge uh, work through that. The highway bridge program is severely underfunded and we'll continue to use the Cal Recycle grants um, for our rubber chip seal projects. I'm not going to read through all of these, but these are all bridges that are in the highway bridge program. The, we're using those funds to, to leverage these monies. These are all in either the environmental or right-of-way phase. We have a series of emergency projects. These you're going to see these names pop up on the different slides. These are not duplicates. These are actually individual slides. I do want to report that Good Hill Road in, in Kent, that opened up yesterday. Right now it's a gravel road, but it is opened, and we did complete Reed Street and Mill Valley through that creek bank erosion repair. Number of slides and slip outs, Lucas Valley Road, Marshall Petaluma Road, Sir Francis Drake, Bolinas Fairfax Road. Um, engineering staff has done a tremendous job trying to keep up with storm damage from this year and years past. So our next steps, our Vision Zero Action Plan, for anyone not familiar with Vision Zero, when we used to design roads, we would look at roads like, we'd say, well, this type of road, if you have 3.2 collisions per million vehicle miles, that's an acceptable number of collisions. And you have this many injuries per million vehicle miles, and that's to be expected in whatever number of fatalities. About 15 years ago, a group of folks got together and, and just said, how is even one fatality acceptable? Right? It, the number should be zero. And of course, we, we all know that we can't really get to zero, but if we're designing for two or three, we're never going to get to zero, right? So if we're looking for none, we do much better and get closer to what we really want. So as we update our traffic collision plans, the local road safety plan, and then we will be going into our Vision Zero action plan. And the cities and towns will be doing that around the same time. We're going to be choosing the same consultant to help everyone be consistent. But of course, the treatments that we would use on slightly more rural roads would be much different than something that would be selected in downtown San Rafael. So each agency should have the ability to customize that to what's really going on in their areas. And then continuous, continuous improvement for race equity and road condition. We're crafting a condition analysis and ratings comparisons of underserved communities. We will coordinate with the utility companies and other agencies to prioritize joint projects where we can go ahead and, and uh, reduce that impact to the community and then report back our, on our goals, our plans, our performance and results biannually. Things we're really excited about, Assembly Bill 43 will go into effect next year. That will allow us to reduce speed limits on our roads. Right now we have to go with the prevailing speed limit which means the speed limit is not going to be lower than the fastest speed of the, the 85th car that we, that we clock, even though we know it would be better to do that. Now, the, the wrinkle here is that we can only apply this to 20% of our road inventory. So we're limited. We won't be able to do this as a first-come, first-served request. Um, we're very lucky we have our new traffic engineer, Fareed Javindal, with us, and um, he is going to have to be looking at all of our collision data, all of our roads, the combination of uses, and, and go ahead and make 
recommendations on them. Our challenges as we head into the next year, of course, recruiting and retaining engineers. Uh, fortunately, we filled all of our principal civil engineer positions, but we are still down multiple senior civil engineers and civil engineers. Uh, every agency, I think, in the area is having the same problem. It's very difficult right now. And of course, increasing project costs. Hopefully, as inflation comes down, maybe we can see reductions in that. And then climate change and sea level rise. If we continue to have the types of storms, if the type of storm we had recently does become a more common storm, that is definitely going to impact our roads, our infrastructure, and it will cost us a lot more time and money to repair those. And that concludes my presentation. I'm happy to take questions. Ray, that was a lot of information, and you <laughs> made it look easy. <laughs> questions, please. So thank you very much for the presentation. Um, I think this is one of the topics that we hear from a lot from the community and really is where sort of literally the constituents meet the road. And so there's a lot. And I appreciate that your staff is always willing to go out and look at an intersection where people are concerned about a crosswalk and talk them through why or what why a flashing beacon may not be appropriate, but it's it's a really important piece of just talking to the community and addressing that bike and ped safety issue from a vision zero perspective, but also from a personal perception safety issue. So I just wanna appreciate it may oftentimes look like a lot of time, but I think it's really an important piece. Um, and I want to thank your staff for working on um, Juneteenth to repave the parking lot. <laughs> Very nice. I appreciate them working on their holiday. Have we adopted a Vision Zero policy? This is a question I oftentimes get, like the county needs to adopt a Vision Zero policy. And I'm seeing like we have strategies, but do we, what's the nomenclature about what we have or what we're aiming for? I'm not sure if the county in the past or the department in the past actually adopted the policy, but years ago adopting the policy just meant we believe in it and we're going to apply the three E's of education, engineering, and enforcement, and we're going to consider this in our design. I think now uh, developing a, a, a Vision Zero strategy is a lot more in-depth. Yeah, it's in the work plan, so we will, be, we will be doing that this year. And will that be done only from a staff level, or will that include the bicycle and pedestrian committee as part of that process? That very well could. We, we haven't laid out all of the public outreach, but we're, we, we will be using a consultant to help us with that. And we're always happy to pull in the bike and ped community, and I have regular meetings with MCBC to hear about their concerns. So yeah, it, it's very important to get everyone's input. And then the deployment of the collision database, will that include pedestrians and bicycles or is that just a collision database for autos? That should uh, include all collisions. Okay. Um. That's also something we maintain because of our local road safety plan. Um, it's one of those things that you need to have to apply for certain grants. Okay, okay. And then I'm hoping that, you know, by the end of this week, we will have approved an active transportation planner that will help to facilitate not only the Vision Zero, but also, um, you know, these 
these links with the cities and towns so that our bicycle infrastructure isn't um, disjointed in places where you've got a great pathway but then sort of a hazardous intersection that people hesitate to go through. So yes, thank, thank you. you. We're, we're very excited about that. Uh, thank you, Rosemary. Great report. It's nice to see all the work that's going on out in my district in particular. Um, just wanted to wonder if you'd comment on the emergency projects. It looks like all of them have been funded by FEMA, Cal OES, or the, the uh, Caltrans Emergency Relief Fund. Yes. Okay. And then do you budget for those and pay for those, anticipating that that funding may not be available for some time and then put that back into the program? Is that sort of how you approach that? Yes, so that, that should be included in, in our board letters as we come along and, and we do those emergency projects. We do have to pay for those up front and then we submit for reimbursement. And the funding goes right back into the road fund when it arrives. Yeah, it, it probably depends on the funding source, but you know, one of the things we can do is we appropriate the funds if we know we're going to get that reimbursement. So you know, oftentimes a board letter might be, you know, we're adding two million dollars worth of revenue, and because we've gotten tentative approval, and then that, then we have two million dollars worth of appropriation. So on a cash flow basis, you know, it's covered with the county, but it. We're, we're appropriating it based on that anticipated revenue. So it really probably depends on the specific project. But oftentimes if we can, you know, if we can appropriate the revenue, that allows us to do more and not just simply rely on sure. what's in our balance. Thank you. And then regarding race equity on the road conditions, it, it looks like you're trying to develop some ratings and comparisons. And I, I do think it's a challenge in unincorporated Marin to identify those communities. We know Marin City probably fits the criteria, but have you gotten far enough to identify what other communities might fit that criteria? And then will you go down to the down to the real local neighborhood streets when you're using this uh, matching the PSI approach? I, I believe so. I mean, we're working with the Office of Equity to get this information. Oddly enough, Marin City doesn't doesn't fit this criteria because their PCI is over 80, their average PCI. So they already have the best PCI probably in the county. Um, yeah. And I think that if we're going to approach this the right way for outlier communities, we need to look at that as well and say, well, they may not be part of a, a large block of roads, but we still need to consider that. So if we really say that none of our underserved communities will have a PCI lower than the county overall average, and then we need to make that happen everywhere. And then related to the roads that are really poor at this point, um, it looks like we're only doing a few miles of replacement roads every year. Um, do you have a long-term plan how to address those roads that we can't just reseal or do an inch overlay or whatever they are, purely replacement? Yes, and we actually had a five-year plan until this last set of storms, and that sort of un upended things so we have to go we're reevaluating because some roads just found their end sooner than what we expected thank you thanks rosemary that was a fire hose of numbers <laughs> thank goodness we've got the slide deck in front of us um question on the um in terms of just recent accomplishments, and um, there's so much work that's gone on, and I'm just wondering, like when we're talking about um, 
number of drainage inlets rehabbed or storm drains repaired or replaced as, as examples. It shows what we've done, and um, you, all, you all obviously have a work plan that identifies a number um, going forward, but I'm wondering, do we have a sense? Do we, do we know the overall need even uh, over time? For drainage inlets? Yeah, well, for any of this, but I'm, I'm calling those out just because I'm thinking about our roadway infrastructure generally, our drainage infrastructure generally. It's all aging, especially the drainage infrastructure is what I'm thinking about. Um, and uh, I'm just, uh, I feel this storm, I'm, or I'm sorry, this recent winter really um, brought into full view, frankly, the pressure that can be put on our storm drain infrastructure and our roads. Um, they are related. A lot of that drainage infrastructure supports or undermines roads. And it kind of, I think, showed our vulnerabilities. And um, I think we tend to be responsive and reactive in terms of things failing. And I'm just wondering to what degree we can actually be proactive, and that means understanding what we see failing around, what we know is failing around the county. So I'm going to let Rachel Calvert, our interim principal civil engineer, uh, take a stab at that. Yeah, um, I don't have the inventory and the need identified as a whole, but what we have is multiple divisions and groups working on that now. Mixstop is very involved in making sure that we catalog and um, identify any um, damage to our facilities. And then road maintenance works on a lot of this stuff as well, <coughs> making repairs and engineering will look at storm drains and drainage inlets when we come to paved roads. Um, also, complaint-driven information will become available. We'll go look at it. So I think that all groups are working together this year, started last year, but we should have an answer to that question soon as we continue to come together to create that database. Everything's being um, GIS and and located, so they have a very good mapping system being developed, and we should get a handle on it. We agree it's an upcoming, um, it's very important that we understand what we're up against. Um, right. um, we also have some big projects coming up that have been designed and we're securing grant funding for um, to replace a 50 culverts in Westland all in one project. Um, we're hoping to be successful in a 404 grant for that. Um, which we'll be seeking in the next couple of months. Um, so. Great. That's, that's what I was looking for. Um, really important. It's a, when we had the CIP presentation just before you, I mean, I think of all this road, roads infrastructure and drainage infrastructure as part, they are assets as well, uh, and really important in public infrastructure. Thank you, Rachel. Um, and then Rosemary on the... Um, Getting to the, just following up on Supervisor Rodoni's um, question and actually your response, I, I was going to ask the question, do we know that there are, are there, this is on the um, viewing our improvements and uh, through an equity lens, and, and I think you answered the question, but maybe you can e even answer it more holistically. Do we have a sense of uh, whether there are great disparities between neighborhoods in terms of PCI? Or has the, I mean, I, I'm just, I'm hoping the county's actually done a, a better job uh, and, and actually treated every road and every community equally in recent years. Yeah, we, we have broken down. Um, so our 
Streetsaver is the software that we use to look at our uh, area, our whole Marin County area, to come up with our average PCI, which you guys know, 66. Um, and we have also been working on more accurately dividing every street by every um, district boundary and every community boundary so that we can generate P like mini PCI reports dependent on which conversation we're having. Um, and we were able to um, do all of the communities and take a look at them, but the caveat is that we're still refining bridging roads at the boundary. So, you know, you can imagine a lot of roads cross district boundaries, let alone community boundaries. Each one of those needs to be broken so that we can accurately quantify the PCI. So we are pretty close and we have a really good consultant through a PTAP grant through MCC who's going to help us um, finish that process. Great, good. Um, and then um, Rosemary, as we get to that, um, sort of developing the, the work plans going forward, and I'm thinking, let's see, where are we? Um, doing that sort of PCI assessment, we've talked about this in the past, and it's not just the pavement, it's not just the, the uh, degree of degradation of the pavement or, or um, level of improvement, it's also, I mean, you're factoring in also use, volume of traffic, um, and then what I really want to hear, and this goes to having that active transportation and active transportation lens, is frankly the level of use of folks on bikes and or pads and the condition of those shoulders, especially that bikes are on, um, which is really important to pay attention to. So can you just speak to how that plays into when we look at PCI, if, if, if indeed it does, are we looking at that whole road, the whole width of that roadway and all the users on that, on that network? Uh, yes, and Rachel's been very good about doing some additional treatments, some areas just doing some treatments on shoulders, but that is something that she's been tasked with is to, to look at the, the mix of users uh, we've had some areas, for example, in, in Marinwood, where we, a lot of bikes come off of Las Colinas to Miller Creek, and they're heading to the Novato bike path. And uh, she recently had a, a project just to re replace certain areas of uh, the entire turn lane and everything because of all the bicycles that go mm -hmm. through there. The entire road isn't ready to be repaved, but that area uh, was was tough on, on bicycles. So yes, and staff has been told that as we go forward, we need to be looking at PCI. Try to try to find a way to do a bike lane PCI. Okay, that that's what I want to hear. And then also that in that analysis, you're you know thinking about how many schools are on a roadway or what have you. And I, I thank you for the work of your team on um, working on uh, Butterfield Road in Sleepy Hollow and adding that class two bike lane, which actually just amounted to frankly striping. The condition of Butterfield Road is horrible. Um, there's three schools on it, and anyway, I just, um, it's a holistic look at those roadways. I think that's what I'm getting at. And then lastly, you have the chart in terms of uh, your funding for the upcoming year. Does that include the two million that was added on towards, okay, um, towards sort of addressing, right? Good, excellent. Appreciate it, all the work you all do. I know you've got a, a full plate and a full set of roads. Uh, just to the, you mentioned earlier, first off, thank you, Rosemary, for the report and all, all the work you and your team do uh, day in and day out. 
Uh, you mentioned the, the five-year plan on the roads that uh, kind of got disrupted a bit by these, these last storms. Uh, is that something that the team will be reworking, and is that a five-year list that's made available to the public so they know what's coming? Is that more sort of an internal document, and then the, the exact roads are made public every one to two years as a part of the CIP? That will be, that will be made public? This list, and um, uh, I, you might want to speak to which areas got hit the worst that we had to make some changes. So um, the five-year plan. Uh, first of all, I think we're finishing up year three of the five-year plan, and um, the we typically only go out a couple years ahead with uh, notifying that these roads are going to be done because there's just so many variables with other users, uh, utilities, and also. Um, roads tend to deteriorate faster or slower than we predict uh, in a lot of cases. And so um, our, we are, will be doing a full new analysis of the road network this summer. So they'll be out there analyzing the roads street by street, putting together a new PCI listing for each road segment, and we will be running a new um, five-year plan based on current road conditions. Those storms really did sort of upend the, the pace at which things were deteriorating. So that, um, that will be a report that will be available to the public. Um, and the caveat will be that, you know, years one and two are being planned and designed, and changes may come based on not only deterioration, but also cost savings opportunities. A lot of times we'll have an opportunity to partner with a utility district, and when we're getting 50% off or 60% off of paving a road, it makes sense with the budget that we have available that we take advantage of those opportunities. Gotcha. So, and so currently, you know, if, if the public's interested, the, the current five-year plan, which I think is now a couple years old, would be their, their best resource for now, but an update is coming? Um, I think best resource for now would probably be our um, list of roads, which I believe we're coming back to the board to present for the next two years. Okay. And then um, beyond that, I think uh, I think the last year is going to be, and I think those two years are going to be slightly different than the five-year plan, which is why I think it's better for them to. Is is that list of roads available now, or that's coming in just a couple? I think it's coming. I'm not sure when that meeting is, but we were uh, putting the, the list of roads together and confirming that that we don't have any um, quick changes to make ahead of ahead of that presentation. So I'll get back to you with the date of when that will be available. Okay. The five-year plan is available, but like I said, it's it's changed a little bit. That's good. If I get inquiries, I'll tell people, wait, wait, we've got an update coming. Yeah. Um, wonderful. There and would have been changes to this next year, um, but we just decided the public was expecting that these roads would be paved, mm -hmm. and we wouldn't want to pull the rug out from under them, so to speak, and tell them their road was going to have to wait because we had to do something else, so we stuck to this year's list. Gotcha. Okay. Sometimes we're able to address a couple um, pinch hit items, you know, especially the potholes. There's a lot more potholes and dig outs that need to be done, so a lot of those roads are the way down. I think what got hit the hardest, I think, is is um, some of the roads on West Rand. St. Francis Road, I think, got hit pretty hard as drivability on it um, decreased. So. Okay. Uh, and then the last question, um, you know, I know all throughout the county we, we have a lot of private roads. And um, curious, when we are doing a public road that's adjacent to private roads, is there an opportunity or is there a mechanism for um, you know, private property owners to um, tack on to an existing contract um, 
or you know, while you have crews that are mobilized, I, I know it's not necessarily a, a, a role of, of government, but I, at least is, is there a way to even provide a mechanism like that for these aging private roads that you know, if they go out on their own, just, just the cost of mobilizing a crew out there is hard, but if, if the crews are already there, does anything like that exist? So we don't necessarily do that, and keep in mind that if these folks use our contract, they'll have to pay prevailing wage, and there's, there's some other expenses. However, by, by posting, uh, posting the roads that we're going to be on early, and when we put out the contract and we make that public, you know, everyone knows who the contractor is, I would welcome folks to contact the contractor and see what kind of uh, deal they can cut at that time when they're in the area. And we would definitely be willing to, in terms of our working days, to work with a contractor who wanted to go ahead and take care of a private road adjacent to what we're working on and before moving on to the, the next road that we have to do. We do have the, um, the, uh, the private road the development, the PRD process that people can sign on to, and then they would be, they would be paying for that work over 30 years. But they, we would, it takes a little bit of time to get into the agreement, mm -hmm. and that's very formalized. But if they're able to cut a deal with a contractor, it, it might even be cheaper, depending on how big the, how okay. big a job it is. And, and outside of that, you said there there is a private road PRD development. Yeah, PRD. Uh, okay. Yes, and uh, uh, Jason Wong in our engineering division takes care of those. Okay, I'll take a little more yeah. look at that. Thank yeah. you. Okay, two things for me. First of all, I want to thank you, Rosemary and Hamid and Rachel, and for the work you did this past year. I know that you were short on staff, and you still got a lot done, and so I just want to appreciate that. I'm, I was also happy, Rosemary, that you mentioned that speed, uh, speed reduction legislation going into place, because I've been looking forward to that, as well as the whole uh, suite of things you're contemplating for bike and pedestrian safety. So thank you for having your eye on the ball on that. Um, I wanted to note that um, the it's great that you're going to coordinate with Marin Water on the road improvements in Marin City. I want to thank you for the crossing, accessible crossing improvements that have been made. Marin City uh, still needs a full bike and pedestrian plan, and I just wanted to mention that Pam um, put an option in the contract for the countywide transportation plan to add a, a bike pedestrian circulation plan. And so I'm going to ask for your help to advocate that they get to it and add that just because it still is feeling piecemeal there. But I'm glad that you said they have 80 PCI because their streets always look great to me. So mm -hmm. that's confirmed. Um, thank you also for the traffic safety study in Pam Valley. Um, and I'm wondering if this is Farid in the back who might be doing it, or if he's on board today, or your your new your new staff member. No, he's not. Okay, he's not so here. Today. Anyway, very good. I'm so glad that um, you're going to look at this, though. It really has reached such a critical proportion down there of just issues, uh, over parked and <laughs> over jaywalk and everything else. Um, Lomita Drive, thank you for the continued attention on that. I'd love to get an update. Uh, and, and Rachel, you were just so great with the community, and I know that we kind of were rethinking that. But anyway, thank you, and I'd love to get an update. And then um, I want to confirm what uh, 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 
Director Lucan, nope, he's a supervisor today, <laughs> about that five-year road plan and the two-year road plan. That really is one of our best promotional opportunities for the county is to let people know what we're doing. And that plan, I understand two years is as far out as anybody really needs to go. So thank you for that. And then finally, Rosemary, if you want to implement that report a pothole app sometime in the next <laughs> coming year, that would be, I think that would really be a marvelous thing if you've got the bandwidth to look at it. At those uh, smartphone apps, you, um, I've used them other places, and you can, someone can take a photo of the, of the pothole, and it will pin it on GPS. And it's not just potholes. It's, tr it's illegal dumping. It's potholes. It's sidewalks. It's everything. And so all of those can go in there, and we can have heat maps to see where we have, where we have problem areas. Yeah, and you said it's a, it's a very direct way for the community to take a picture and it goes to the right place. And right. I just I think that's a wonderful thing. And, and one of the things that makes it hard, I would just want to say, to go out more than two years on, on the paving plan is that the, the general managers group is meeting again You know, with all of the utilities. Um, there weren't some meetings over the pandemic, but that's where the, a lot of collaboration has to take place between us and the utilities because we do have a moratorium on cut, cutting the road for utility work once we pave that until it reaches a certain PCI. So we don't want to go out and thwart their uh, desires to upgrade their infrastructure. And so we sometimes their plans change, and that makes a change in, in Rachel's plan for which road can be, can be paved. So it's a lot of moving parts and a lot of people to work with. Thank you very much for this update. Uh, we'll open now to public comment on the items that we've heard this morning. And so if there's anyone uh, who's not in the chambers, if there's anyone online, I see one hand up. Yes. The first speaker is Clayton Smith. Please unmute. His vision statement, drivers and goals. What your planners are presenting under what we want to be what we want to look like are from the perspective of many of the people in this county, what you want us to be and what you want us to look like. Using your administrative and financial powers imposed here is contrary to living in a free society where people in their daily peaceful, voluntary, cooperative interactions actually define what the society is that they live in. The sanctimony blatantly apparent in this is just stunning. But we have been here before. The social engineering inherent in your strategic goals comes straight out of the Marxist-Leninist playbook of governance, pitting class against class, promoting divisiveness and demagoguery. What I see is that you are marching to the orders of George Soros, Jamie Dimon, and Larry Fink. These master plans are principally designed to benefit the planners and the bureaucracies they administer, notwithstanding the ample buy-ins provided by these highly profitable public-private partnerships that are on offer. The community survey you referred to self-selects for those who don't value their per personal privacy highly and are not adverse to being data mined. Your likely respondents are those looking to get something from government, of course at taxpayer expense, for they belong to that ever-growing collection of the ideologically possessed who are looking for the state to rearrange the world to suit their ideations. 
But in the end, one should get a grip and always ask, qui bono? Who benefits? Certainly not most of us. Thank you. The next speaker is Donna. Please unmute. I give you um, an A grade for graphs, charts, and PowerPoint presentations. I give you a C for strategic goals. I give you a D for the financial reality check. Um, the Board of Supervisors need, um, does not need to be in denial about the fact that the, the nation is $32 trillion in debt, $39 trillion that they're working towards right now. California is in financial default. The Legislative Analyst Office has indicated that there is a 40% decline in personal income tax withholding. You base your budget on a 4% inflation rate, but in reality, it's closer to 9%. The Board of Supervisors needs to um, come up with a more basic core competency goal, strategic goals, that reflects the needs of the whole community, not a narrowly sliced group, uh, and do that without increasing taxes and fees to the community. I give kudos to the department heads who gave very good comprehensive reports on their needs, and their needs are uh, horrific, and delaying some of these needs is detrimental to the whole county and will cost us more money in the long run. The county is not a nonprofit donor organization. They need to, um, we're not looking to be kids in a candy store or a Santa Claus. Please be sure to use your financial responsibility when you're reviewing these um, budget goals. Thank you. Representative Mullen Peters, there are no additional speakers indicated. Okay. Thank you for the comments. With that, uh, we are going to adjourn now for the noon hour. We'll be back at 1.30 p.m. and start with the Marin County Open Space Budget. Thank you, everyone, for the presentations.
Good afternoon. We are reconvening now as the Board of Supervisors, and we will pick up where we left off, overview of the proposed Marin County Open Space Budget. Welcome, Max. Thanks so much, uh, Max Gorton, General Manager, Marin County Open Space uh, District. And when we can start the slideshow, there it is, perfect. So um, this is the same uh, slideshow that uh, Chris Chamberlain presented a couple weeks ago. And typically as part of our uh, multi-step process with your board um, for presenting our budget, which includes our three main funding sources, the open space district uh, funding measure A, and then the general fund parks funding. I'll go through this relatively quickly at a high level, and then I'm happy to answer any specific questions that folks may have. Um, so uh, in terms of those different funding sources, uh, the open space district is funded through an another measure A that was passed in the 1970s that's uh, just funds open, sp open space district uh, it brings in so 9.8 million uh, this coming year. And then uh, measure A is the quarter cent sales tax. Uh, and I'll go into more specifics about it, but it funds both parks and open space. And then in the general fund portion, you can see that uh, about 2.5 million uh, comes from uh, the general fund. And then additionally, um, the other about half of that uh, parks funding uh, comes from fees and uh, lease revenue and other sources like that. And uh, one thing to note in here is that um, we're programming more expenditures than the revenue we're bringing in. That's because in the year prior, we, were, um, we had Measure A on the June ballot, and so we'd sort of been a little bit conservative in our uh, programmed expenditures, and so we have um, some use of fund balance uh, in this upcoming budget. And this is just looking more specifically at our three main funding sources. Um, you can see for open space and general fund, that green area is uh, salaries, benefits, and other fixed costs. So, um, and the orange is, you know, essentially our projects, our ability to do, you know, larger projects and programs. And that's really what Measure A brings to parks um, and open space. And then, you know, the other two components that are unique about Measure A, uh, the Sustainable Ag Program, uh, which is 20% of Measure A, which is a little different in this newer version of Measure A than the old one, um, in that it provides sort of a wider range of, of support for different components of sustainable agriculture and, and uh, community gardens. And then uh, the blue portion there, which is 15%, which is the cities, towns, and special districts, which is apportioned uh, basically on a, a per capita basis uh, for the most part um, and provides funding for park and open space uses to the cities and towns and special districts. And then this is just to look at our employees. So, you know, the vast majority of our employees are our rangers and landscape service workers and seasonal employees who are out there on the ground, uh, you know, taking care of our parks and preserves our trail crew, our biologists are out monitoring for nesting birds and things like that to enable the work that we do to go forward, our vegetation crew. Um, but then we do have uh, natural resource managers, planners, um, administrative folks, and uh, our outstanding communications team. 
And then our, uh, this is looking at the projects component of our budget. And you can see that the um, you know, biggest components of, of our uh, projects budget are our park facilities. You know, we're really focused on addressing deferred maintenance in our park facilities um, and improving them. And then wildfire fuel reduction. You know, one of the new things about the, the 2022 uh, Measure A is that there's a specific set aside for fire fuel reduction. So that's what you're seeing here. And that has to be, you know, um, all that on the ground uh, fuel reduction work. And then our road and trail management has always been a really big part of, of the work that we do and our open space preserves to maintain our, our roads and trails. But you can see there's a, a number of other sections. One thing that's to call out here is our wetland restoration component looks relatively small, but that's also because we're able to leverage a lot of outside money that's not uh, included in this, um, in this graph. So I just want to touch bri briefly on our sort of priority focus areas. Uh, vegetation management, you know, I want to really appreciate partnerships here. We work with the MWPA, but also with all of the member agencies, cities and towns, local fire districts. Um, and then with our one TAM uh, forest health partnership with the other large land managers. And, you know, with our local cities and towns and MWPA, we're really focused on defensible space and evacuation routes and providing those critical services to the communities that surround us. The, uh, our open space preserves are unique because they are, they ring the developed parts of Marin. So, you know, we have 3,500 backyards that back up against our open space preserves. And so we're really, really focused on, uh, defend, on defensible space. But the one TAM forest health piece is looking at the much bigger forested part of Marin County and, you know, on a landscape level, how do we manage that both for, um, for wildfires, but also for just the sustainability of the ecosystems uh, and, and the forests there with climate change. So um, really exciting partnerships that are helping us do that at a, at a landscape level. Um, this is, you know, vegetation management is one of our um, sort of key uh, compass uh, areas and is part of our open data portal. So anybody in the community can go online and look at all of our vegetation maps, where they are on the, on the map, uh, our projects, pardon me, and then it includes the size and the type of treatment and information about it. Um, so there's a lot of great information there. Uh, road and trail management. You know, this is something that I think our, our team has been really proud of. And, and as we go around to visit and spend time with other land managers, um, I think our road and trail efforts have become a bit of a model within at least around the Bay Area in terms of integrating, you know, different uh, goals between resource management and environmental uh, sustainability, but also with uh, accessibility uh, of the trail system. And then really the high quality of, of our road and trail crew additionally in, in implementing you know, outstanding work to uh, you know, rebuild the trails that we have. Uh, and then equity and community engagement between our round table that meets to help advise us on, on potential work, our community grants program, the fee reduction that your board approved, a uh, whole calendar of free events. Um, this has really been a focus for our team and, and is in the coming year. Also our park facilities, uh, as we presented, uh -oh. sorry. 
uh, the other day, uh, the um, fixing some of the storm damage issues like the pier at McNears Beach. We're also planning on uh, adding signage to our multi-use paths, um, which has been much needed. And we did a small pilot this last year at Horse Hill. Um, and there's a number of other uh, park facilities improvements we're planning. And then our priority of, of climate resilience and sea level rise adaptation. Uh, this is looking at uh, Bothine Marsh, I think, here in these pictures, but uh, and Ella and Bolinas Lagoon on the right there, two of our, our main focus areas uh, for sea level rise adaptation. And those are our main areas of focus. There's a lot of other work that we do, um, but I'm happy to answer any questions. Is the measure A, um, 1970s um, measure A for the open space district, is that, does that have an expiration date? No, I think it's in perpetuity. Okay, thanks. Uh, Max, I just wanna compliment you and I wanna point out a little detail, but your group is so visually oriented. <laughs> this little donut chart is so easy to read mm -hmm. because you, put them, you know, in descending order and color code. I mean, you can read it going clockwise. Anyway, thank you. Not all charts are done like this. You have to kind of skip all over the place to find the data. So just another um, way you make our job easy for us. Well, I appreciate it. I have to credit our communications team. They yeah. put together these charts, this presentation. You know, one of our requirements is having an annual report and for Measure A, and so all those charts come from uh, the reporting in there. I wonder if you would mind, uh, on top of that, going to your slide with the uh, with the signage for the multi-use paths. I had brought this up at a transportation executive committee, but I, I wanted all my colleagues to see this talk about the panels and maybe a little bit of the content so everybody sees that we have a wonderful template that your group took 18, 24 months to research other uh, places and their signage. Yeah, thank you very much. So, and this is sort of building off the efforts we did in the open space preserves where over the last five years or so, we started by putting up some pilot signs and getting feedback from all the different groups that are engaged and um, interested in planning in our open space preserves. And I think ended up with a really great uh, series of signs that are now on all of our trailheads. And we want to do something similar in the multi-use paths, and so we started at uh, at the ho at Horse Hill with a pilot, and building off of both the path the signage that we've used in the open space preserves, but also looking at best practices from all kinds of different areas for use on uh, multi-use paths, and uh, and we piloted a bunch of different ideas, engaged with uh, I don't I can't remember Mill Valley City Council, uh, MCBC the Safe routes to schools, the I think maybe BPAC folks, um, can, I think Transportation Agency of Marin um, was engaged in that. Uh, and so to get feedback on the wording and what, you know, what the right um, balance of information <laughs> to have was, and so. Yeah, and uh, I, th I think uh, Supervisor Lucan was in this meeting with me, and so Eric, what I'll point out is that at the top is, they, these are all, all these are little tiles, and so you can change them out, make them specific to the area. We were talking about the North-South Greenway, 
and how certain segments of it are known by different names. And you were able to accommodate that by having uh, you know, a principal name at the top and then the local moniker below and then directional information and services available and mileage to the next town and, and, um, and a little map. And it's really just, they're wonderful. They're very adaptable. And so my, my hope is we can use them in other locations for the Greenway uh, if, if people think that's a good idea. But I like what you did on the multi-use path in Southern Marin. I appreciate it. I think one of the things that's really guided our communications team is wanting to welcome people to our parks and preserves. You know, I think our old signs were like, don't do this and don't do that. And so, <laughs> you know, we wanted to do it, you know, start with saying hello and welcome and giving some information, but also having some rules too. Hey, Max, a um, couple questions on that. Uh, the the uh, circle number of employees sort of break out when I agree with uh, my colleague on just graphically, just so easy to understand. But can you just talk a little bit more about the seasonal workforce and where they're sort of deployed and how they're deployed? Sure, yeah. I mean, you know, I think the seasonal workforce is just like a big part of parks anywhere. And I started out as a seasonal park employee when I was 19 and did it for five years, and it's an amazing experience. And, um, you know, I think our, one of the challenges for our seasonal employees, they're, they're everywhere. So they're, we have seasonals that work on our trail crew. At each of our regional parks, there's often, what, three seasonals, three or four seasonals. Um, there's out in West Marin, there's, I think, three or four seasonals that work with our three rangers out there and both maintain restrooms but also help do trail work on the, at the Vedanta property over there. So just a huge variety of things. Civic Center, there's seasonals who work here in landscape services at the Civic Center. Um, they're a part of everything we do because there's, in the winter, we don't have much visitation and there's often a lot that we're not able to do during the winter because of the rainy season. And so we really have this seasonal attribute to, to the kind of work that we, we do. You know, one thing I think that we're, you know, was in your budget, I think yesterday highlighted in the DCPs is providing some additional seasonal housing because we know that it's really hard to find, it's hard to find housing in the Bay Area, but especially if you're only going to be employed for uh, six to nine months. And, um, and we know that we've had seasonals that were like living out of their vehicles at times. And so we really want to make sure that's not a barrier for our, our seasonal employees. And, and also that they can live close to their work if possible. So uh, right now, one of the projects from this previous year's budget is improving uh, old ranger residence at McNears Beach to be a small sort of bunkhouse for seasonals there. And that project should be completed like the end of this summer maybe. Maybe that's optimistic. But uh, <laughs> hopefully for the next season when it starts. And then, uh, and then next year, there's an old residence at Deer Island uh, in Novato that we're hoping to improve similarly. Uh, we hope to do something similar in the future at Stafford Lake and potentially at McGinnis Park. And so, you know, it's, it's also just really great to have eyes and ears on the ground in our parks in the evenings and things like that. So um, I think it's really sort of a win-win. Uh, yeah, great. And then um, also more specific to the bu budget, do I recall that we had some fixed-term positions that are now transitioning to regular hires with the second iteration of 
Yeah, it's already in, but just could yeah. you speak to that too? I think it's kind of act, it's really important. Yeah, so with the initial measure A, uh, a lot of the positions that were brought on were brought on as fixed, as fixed term employees. And it was actually before some of the current rules around fixed term employees were in place, so they had some very long fixed terms. Um, and, and once the measure was extended, we'd already been starting to convert those into regular higher non-fixed term positions, but we uh, brought it to your board to convert the rest to regular hire once the measure was passed. And of course, as, um, you know, as we're potentially filling new positions, we're always looking at whether we have the right um, model of, of you know, which, which positions we're filling. And so looking at whether we need to change a position, remove a position, switch it to something else. Um, I think Chris and I have been, and HR has been a really great partner in, in looking at those and, and coming up with opportunities to make our, our, our team better. Um, and I think it also, though, it, it points to, I mean, one of the challenges with a 10-year term of a funding source, uh, as you, ex you know, obviously with the original, well, the second, uh, the, the 2012 ver version of Measure A, it really expanded Parks' capacity in terms of funding, and we had to add staff. Um, but when you, when you have a fairly short horizon, um, so anyway, it's something to be thinking about as we get closer to doesn't, it's not very, it doesn't take long to get to a re-up on a 10-year measure, but I think it's really important and, and maybe something to be planting the seeds around uh, as parks and open space have really um, shown a track record in terms of how, the, how, how they're putting to use taxpayers' money and that um, measure money, but I just, I wanted to just highlight that. And then um, on the same theme, um, I think that parks and open space, your department generally in this budget and whole really has benefits from the expenditure plan structure that's built into it, the Measure A Oversight Committee, and then um, certainly the Parks and Open Space Commission, which you have the benefit, you get are able to run run you know projects through and uh, programs and really get input. And frankly, it's not just the commission; it's that larger. Um, the larger form that you create under those auspices and also your staff going out and having, whether it's an environmental round table, table what have you, that I think that everything, this budget, uh, how well it's executed and the high level of um, product that Parks turns out is uh, due in no large part to the amount of um, engagement that you are required to. Uh, involved, but also uh, manage to to grow in your own um, efforts. Anyway, so I just wanted to also highlight that, um, so you don't get all the credit. The public gets a ton. Um, and then just a um, uh, just thank you on all the just excellent models of partnership, collaboration, um, and process, and um, it's all reflected here, and and really good work. Thank you. <coughs> Max, thank you for the update. We saw this earlier, I think, at a, at a board meeting, but <clears throat> I just wanted you to comment on this 2.68 million on wildfire fuel reduction. That's all Measure A funding, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. So, and that's that, um, I believe it's 25% of 65% of the 16 million that from Measure A, and so, and that all is funding actual crew time doing fuels reduction. So like all of our, 
biological monitors or our planners and, and resource managers that manage that work, that's not even included in that uh, 2.6 million. That 2.6 million is just the actual work that's, that's getting done. Good, thank you. Do, does your crew notice how well our neighbors are doing on their properties when we're out working? Because I think maybe that's an important connection, MWCA, when we're doing work to connect the neighbors with, with their program. So that yeah, yeah, yes. And I think that it's actually one of the exciting things. I mean, it's the MWPA partnership is it's really great in that for, I think, doing – if we do the just the work on our land and then it's like a wall of – you know, 10 foot tall broom next to it, it feels kind of meaningless. But if it's part of something bigger, it really does feel like a meaningful effort to protect the community. And whether it's like the greater Ross Valley fuel break or the Novato, greater Novato fuel break, those kinds of efforts that are really at that community wide level and integrate multiple property owners are, um, you know, really sort of meaningful. And I think we've tried to create a, um, a metric for our team in terms of like how we're doing on maintaining our, our preserve and, and what that is is like drawing this sort of snake of like all of that defensible space and and trying to each year to figure out what percentage of that did we maintain with our goal really being that we maintain 100% of it so that whether or not other people are doing it when they s come to the open space all the defensible space is maintained each year. Terrific. And then just one little picky thing under community engagement, we refer to the free entry as regional parks. And for me, that means beyond county parks. So just wanted to note that, that we might want to call that a little different, better better described so that our state park state park partners okay. don't have people showing up that saying, you read that it was for free. <laughs> That's a good point. We call those parks our regional parks, but I understand. We can change that, yeah. I think we did it. Thank okay. you very much. Thank for you the very report. much. We, we are asking for uh, adoption of the open space budget. Is Thank you for correcting us <laughs> on this. I will move adoption of the open space budget. Second. I'm going to call for public comment. Welcome, John. Thank you. Good afternoon, supervisors. Uh, not to uh, belabor my appreciation of parks, but uh, they are always great to us. Um, and I want to relay the upshot of a conversation that I had the pleasure of having with some parks communication employees around those same signs that you were complimenting, uh, supervisor, and not to have it received as a criticism of anything done because they were actively reaching out for support with how to best serve the disabled community. And... Um, took our notes uh, very well, but currently those signs don't involve, uh, as far as we got to see, uh, braille, braille maps, or other accommodations for visual impairment, despite the fact that the contrast on them is really strong for being able to find them with partial uh, visual ability. So making sure that uh, future models of those signs include things like voice boxes, connecting to uh, navigation apps, or um, other tools. Um, Tunnel Tops uh, across the bridge in San Francisco has some great tools that they're using around accessibility throughout their park and could have some really good models there. Um, so just wanted you all to be aware of that conversation that we got to have uh, to follow up and see 
uh, what happens with the signage. Thanks. Welcome. I think this is the continuous improvement part. <laughs> uh, okay. There's no one else in the chamber. Uh, is there anyone online? I'm not seeing any raised hands. Okay. We will, uh, we've had a motion and a second. All in favor of approving the budget? Aye. Aye. Thank you. Thank you. Next is the proposed Marin County Flood Control and Water Conservation District budget. And this is also an action item. Welcome, Tracy. Good afternoon, members of the board. Um, I'm Tracy Clay. I am a principal civil engineer working with the uh, uh, managing the Flood Control and Water Resources Division in the Department of Public Works. And I'm here today to present the baseline budget and uh, work plan for the uh, Marine County Flood Control and Water Conservation District. Well, this is the third of three meetings that I've been talking to you about the baseline budget. Today, uh, the main purpose of the meeting is to have a formal adoption of the recommended flood zone baseline budgets and to adopt our approve and adopt a resolution to approve our work plan. As you know, the district covers the boundaries of the county, um, but we only do work in eight of the flood zones shown here. So today I'm going to be talking about two parts very clear, distinctly. The first one is the baseline budget. The second one is going to be the work program. I'll go over the baseline budget rather briefly since I did spend some time on it last week or on, on the 6th. But as you know, we um, do mostly maintenance and also operations and management of our facilities. This table shows you a summary of our expenditures and our revenues and use of fund balance. And this sheet, this particular slide goes uh, one through zone one through zone four. And the use of fund balance, if it's in parentheses, that means that we are actually accumulating funds in that zone. And this slide's showing zone six through zone 10. And one of the things I wanted to revisit this image here because it it really emphasizes the amount of infrastructure that we have in the zone, over $100 million of, of facilities. And um, what we have seen over the last decade is a, a pretty um, precipitous rise in labor costs to maintain these facilities. This is can be attributed to a couple of factors. One are um, the increasing age of the infrastructure, and the second one is the requirements <coughs> for uh, regulatory um, compliance. Um, for example, we have 37 miles of creek throughout the, throughout the county that we maintain for flood control purposes. And um, this requires quite an extensive amount of, of management and oversight. Regardless, we do have um, teams of people, the MCCs that we hire to do this work, 
but um, regardless, we have to have someone go out there and um, assess the, the creeks annually, uh, direct the work and do the improvements that are done and monitor the creeks throughout the year. And so this can be, this adds up. It's not just the uh, staff that manage the MCCs, but it's also biologists and, um, and that sort of thing. The engineers go out there too. These things add up and, and over half of these 37 miles of creek are in flood zone one. Another example of this kind of um, extensive management and oversight of some of our facilities are the earthen levees. We have over 13 and a half miles of earthen levees throughout the county and um, three quarters of those or two thirds of those are in flood zone one. We have um, quite a bit of work needs to be done on an annual basis to maintain these. Uh, we inspect them annually. There's periodic uh, emergency repairs, especially this last year that need to be done. You've seen our discussion about the rodent holes that we do on an annual basis and vegetation management. And um, again, just referring to this table, you can see the different levels of facilities in the different zones and the, the labor costs mirror, you know, it proportionally mirror this, but are actually are um, billed out on the actual hour by hour of time spent in the zones. So that's all I have to say about the baseline budget. Um, now I'm moving on to the second part where I'm going to talk about the work plan. And the work plan includes two main components. One is a facilities maintenance piece, which are mostly items that are included in the baseline budget. And the second part is the flood risk reduction projects. Those are more what you would consider CIP projects. Um, California Water Code Appendix 68 is the, the law that governs the work that we do in the flood control district. And it requires that for projects greater than $10,000 that we conduct a public hearing and that the board adopts a resolution to approve these projects. And the way we have started to do things is um, over the last several years, we come to your board with a large listing of projects. Um, and for especially for the flood maintenance activities, these projects are, are a, an umbrella listing of everything that we think may occur in the district. And I, I mentioned this before when speaking to you, but it's important that we have a comprehensive list here because sometimes we may not be able to respond as quickly as possible if we had to go through this whole hearing process before. So what is in the attached document um, to your board letter is this very comprehensive list of maintenance items. So with that, I'm gonna, I have um, several maps that outline and summarize the facility maintenance work that we're doing. And again, these are ongoing activities. They happen annually and they are included in your baseline budget. In flood zone one, uh, you can see here, this, this map is an excerpt from our annual stream maintenance permit that we have uh, with the uh, state water board. And um, the lines in green are either a levee or a creek maintenance area. And you can see this is zone one. You can see how extensive the creek maintenance work is in, in Novato. And also there's, there's um, 
four pump stations that we maintain in Novato. And this next slide shows zone three and zone four in Southern Marin. Zone three, we have creek maintenance work that we do along Coyote Creek in Tam Valley and levee work there as well, and five pump stations. In zone four, we have three pump stations and we do creek maintenance work along East Creek and West Creek. Zone five, uh, we do creek maintenance work on Escoot Creek and this includes a sediment basin. And you can see this, the scale's a little deceiving. It's a much smaller area than, than the other maps that I showed you. Zone seven, all of the green line in this image uh, represents the levee that protects zone seven. And there's also five pump stations there. And in flood zone nine, we have the work in lower quarter Madeira Creek, which is uh, mostly on the concrete channel. And, and we also have a little bit of work in the upper, in the upper Fairfax Creek, which we is new because we have to do that now that we added the detention basin. And so that, that's the end of the, the maintenance actions. Now I'm gonna move into the second part of this second part of the presentation and talk about the flood risk reduction projects. These are one-time projects. These projects, any um, budget adjustments that need to be made will, be, uh, will come to you in a separate item. They're not included in the baseline budget. And um, what I'm, how I'm gonna present this is in zone by zone. I'll have a listing of the different projects and highlighting one or two projects in each zone. In zone one, we have three projects the first two projects, Deer Island Basin and Novato Creek uh, Bypass Study, are both of those are studies. There's only funding available for the study work. Uh, Novato Creek Sediment Removal and Beneficial Reuse is a, a basically a, set, a construction project that's scheduled for 2025. And a um, little bit of background here on Deer Island Basin. Um, Deer Island Basin, the project that we have before you today, and that's in our work plan, is a subset of the larger Novato Baylands uh, tidal wetland enhancement um, work that we're planning on doing. And um, the emphasis here is to restore these two existing uh, ponds that are adjacent to Novato Creek to a tidal wetland. And in the image, the, blue, the dark blue area is the sinuous area is the creek and the lighter blue are the existing ponds. And what we're planning on doing is doing a, a small um, breach of the levee on the upstream portions of each one of these ponds. And that's gonna allow the water to ebb and flow in and out of the ponds on a daily cycle with the tide. And the concept is that um, as the water comes in and out, sediment gets deposited and it's through a natural process because the waters are so still in those ponds, the sediment will fall out. And we're hoping um, other studies and other pro projects around the Bay Area, uh, wetlands have naturally formed in uh, less than 10 years in this kind of environment. And, and this is our first phase of work and we are really eager to see this. We already, um, so, 
some of the benefits of doing this project are um, there's over a thousand feet of a very vulnerable levee in this section. And if we get the construction funded, we'll be able to replace that those levees with ecotone levees, and um, which are wider, broader levees that are very um, adaptable to sea level rise. And then um, the other thing is, is we will get the material for these levees by dredging Novato Creek, which will expand the capacity of the creek. Um, the funding, so far we, we have secured $630,000 in Measure AA, and um, the remainder of the funding for the design and environmental compliance was provided through uh, Flood Zone 1, and we are currently seeking $10 million for construction funding, and if we're successful in that, we would like to go to construction in 2025 or 2026. Um, but this is part of a larger Novato Bayland strategy, and we are working with several parties in the region, SFEI, Audubon Society, uh, Novato Sanitary District, Caltrans, and the tribes to um, develop a strategic partnership. And we have received over $200,000 in funding from SFEP to support this work. Um, so we're pretty excited about this and the opportunities that are available here. Um, in Zone 3, we have five projects in the work program. The um, first two projects are funded, are partially funded by uh, the Senator McGuire funds that he brought into Marin City. Uh, the next three projects are Cam Valley projects, Crest Marin Pump Station and Cardinal Levy Seepage are design projects. And the both in Marsh is, um, we just have funding in here to apply for a grant and it's a project we're working on with parks to have a, a beneficial sediment reuse which would be combined with dredging the channel and placing the sediment in the channel in the um, adjacent Bothing Marsh for a wetland restoration project. So in Marin City, the two projects that I mentioned, um, Donahue Temporary Pump Station is fully funded by the McGuire funding. And this is a, a temporary pump station so we can get immediate benefit from this. We're looking to go to construction um, this year on the Donahue pump station. Uh, the funding that McGuire's, Senator McGuire has provided will provide for construction and 24 um, and operations for three years of the pump station. This is going to reduce the duration um, and severity. I'm so sorry about that. Um, the duration and severity of the roadway flooding. The second project um, that we're doing in Marin City is a uh, flood pond, is a, it's a pump station. It's a, it, we call it the uh, pond flood reduction project. It actually includes three elements. It includes a pump station, a flood wall, and local drainage that comes to the, the pump station. We had been working with FEMA and um, we're well along the way to get a FEMA, FEMA funding for this $10 million project. Uh, it requires 25% local match, and the Senator McGuire funding is going to help close that gap. And this will give us um, a permanent pump station uh, that will help improve 
of sea level resiliency, sea level rise resiliency. And in this image here, it's a, a schematic, a conceptual rendering of what the pump station would look like uh, if you were in the parking lot of the shopping center looking out towards Highway 101. And you can see it just on the, in the far distance there. In Zone 4, we have uh, evaluation of the channel improvements, both on Lower West Creek and East Creek. And in Zone 7, we are working on the Santa Venetia flood wall project design. And this is, um, we're currently at the CEQA phase of this project. In Zone 9, we have two projects, the San Antonio Flood Risk Reduction Project, SAFER project, and the Corte Madera Creek Flood Risk Management Project. Uh, the SAFER project has three elements. The first one is the Sunnyside Nursery Flood Diversion and Storage Basin. That project is um, completed and was functioning this summer, I mean this last winter. Uh, Building Bridge 2 project, we are in the final phases of design and hope to uh, begin construction next year. The uh, creek restoration and park integration work that's associated with Building Bridge 2 is just downstream and on the same site as the, the bridge project. And the uh, Corte Madera Creek Flood Risk Management Project has uh, four components to it. It has a stormwater pump station and an access ramp. It has the uh, fish ladder removal and the channel improvements just upstream of that and some modifications to the channel downstream. We are the fish resting pool improvements to improve fish passage. And there is also the uh, lower College of Marin restoration part of the channel where we would change that portion, remove that portion of the concrete channel and install a natural channel. And that concludes my presentation. I've left here on this sheet, I have a website for any other questions that people might have that aren't here in the room. And if there's some questions that come up later, we left the email, uh, people can contact us. Thank you, Tracy. Great, very complete report. Questions from anyone? Please. Thank you very much for the straightforward report. Um, how, can you speak to sort of the, so, as you know, I'm interested in flood zone seven and where the, um, the maintenance versus the project is, are, when we look at the baseline budget. The project is not included in the baseline budget and that's just for annual maintenance, is that right? That's right. Okay, and so when I look at flood zone seven, it's showing a positive number, so that means we're exceeding our baseline budget. The positive number means that they're, they're using your fund balance. There's a use of fund balance. That means the amount of funds is going down in your reserves. Got it. Okay, um, and I appreciate, you know, the kind of strategy that we're working on as far as communication and regular um, outreach to the flood zone advisory boards and engaging them as partners, hopefully, in messaging and working with the community. So I, um, I really appreciate the work, Tracy, that you've put into sort of formalizing that, the notifications. Um, 
the other issue that I'm, you know, I'm always thinking of, are there opportunities to get funding from someplace other than FEMA when it comes to these projects? Um, I know that one is not particularly like a Measure AA type project, but are we looking for other funding? Do we have the, you know, do we have somebody who's looking for funding and other opportunities for some of these projects? We do. We, um, we are constantly looking for funding and keep our, keeping our eye on funding opportunities. And, you know, I mentioned a couple of different sources that we've received funding for. And every time an opportunity comes up, we look at a list of projects that we have or active projects and see which ones are the best fit. Santa Venetia levy is a little, is very challenging because most of the, um, the non-FEMA levies that aren't flood protection focused um, wanna see a, uh, like a habitat restoration component to it. That's what makes it particularly challenging. But we still do keep an eye out. Army Corps of Engineers, FEMA, those are the likely candidates. But we, we try to be creative and look for other options. There may be funding coming out that are more sea level rise um, without the restoration component, but I haven't seen those yet, but we, we do look. Okay, and then as far as the FEMA, my understanding is there's two buckets. One that would that requires, in order for us to qualify, requires that some of the folks in flood zone seven have FEMA flood insurance. And I know we're digging into that a little bit to see if some of those residents do have flood insurance. Um, do you have any more information on whether I thought we were going to try to go to FEMA or and or to the residents to try to get information. Veronica has been working on that a little bit. Okay, more. thank you. If she has an update. Hi, Veronica Davidson, Assistant Director of Public Works. I am in communications with a FEMA representative that handles all the insurance programs for FEMA. In fact, uh, she has verified that we do have insurance policyholders in that area, so that's no longer an issue. And we are coordinating with her to have a community meeting so that she can come in and answer questions from directly from a FEMA expert on, on flood insurance policies. So that would open up this other pot? It, it has opened up okay. that pot that we thought was unavailable because of erroneous information we received from FEMA. Okay. That's no longer the case. We are eligible when the funding becomes available. Okay, thank you. Uh, Tracy, thank you. Couple questions. Um, one, the new the um, pump station in Grenton Park. Yes. Um, does that qualify to be on the map of the pump, pump stations that need to be maintained? Yes, it does. I think we need to update a slide then. Okay, we will. Okay, just mm -hmm. wanted to make sure. I know that that's new work. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not all the way complete yet. It's not complete yet. And that's why and it's not. And we will there. have to add it to our stream maintenance program. That's why it's not on that map. Okay. Because Got it's not currently in our stream maintenance program. Okay. But, but phase one of that project is mm -hmm. done. And okay. Thank you for that. Mm -hmm. And then just more generally um, on funding for both, um, and this is of course flood zone nine, funding for completing the safer project and the, and the Cordillera Creek project. Where are we with that? And in terms of the work plan for the coming year? We're, we're fully funded for this coming year. Um, the 
key components of additional funding uh, are grant applications, primarily for the components of the lower Corte Madera Creek work, or all of the Corte Madera Creek work um, that have fish passage components with them. And those are very, uh, we feel very, very strongly about the chances of getting funding, outside funding for those. Okay, and that's sort of related to the question that Supervisor Sackett just asked in terms of grant eligibility, what's gonna be, okay. And I was actually wondering to what degree are those projects, um, the projects that are more environmentally or fish, fish passage related, um, can that work be married up with something that's not exactly in the same location? And I'm also thinking of the Santa Venetia work or somewhere else that doesn't necessarily have an environmental component. Um, that you, that's brings up a good point. Like the DWR grant that we have for the Ross Valley project, it grouped several projects together. Some had, because that has an umbrella grant, the DWR grant, and it, and that has several fish patches components to it. That's why it was eligible. So that may be a strategy for some place like Flood Zone Seven. And then um, just with lastly. Um, on the, there's a, one of the slides shows a design for the building bridge to removal project. Yes. And the parking, so what we're looking at here is, is slightly downstream. I guess, let me rephrase the question. Um, the town has a, a park project that will come after the bridge removal. Right. And um, if not today, when I'm sure you can't bring it to me today, I'd love to see how our project integrates with their project. And then um, lastly, and I, I think I heard you say that we're, we're on schedule for getting that, the rest of this building bridge to removal done um, next year. Yes, we are. All right, thank mm -hmm. you. I don't have any questions, Chrissy, just appreciation for the progress that you and Roger are doing but Eric has a question, so here you uh, go. Thank you, sorry to, sorry to uh, interrupt there. Um, just uh, two items, um, one of your slides caught my attention, this one about the California Water Code Appendix 68, yeah. projects greater than $10,000. How much does this hinder, I mean, I, I understand you can go through the public hearing and all that, but that seems like a very low threshold. The um, Water Code hasn't been updated since the 50s when it was written. And so at that time, that seemed like a pretty large number, but it hasn't been updated. So that's why we do this sort of comprehensive collection of projects and annually so that a lot of the smaller maintenance items probably wouldn't have um, been caught by that limit, but now they are. And does that caught it, create a bottleneck in terms of being able to deliver projects or just a delay? It's an extra administrative hurdle, definitely, right. yeah. And I don't know if with our state lobbyists, it seems like that is a number that should be updated. Yeah, I was just gonna say Talia Smith is uh, in the audience. Uh, she's <laughs> our legislative coordinator and she'll make a note of it and see if that's an opportunity. Sounds good. Okay. Um, thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you for that. Um, and then the uh, next one, um, just with, with regards to, I guess it applies to all the flood zones, but particularly the some of the larger ones that have larger, larger revenues, larger budgets. Mm -hmm. um, can we, can we update the flood control website a little more with some details of you know, ongoing maintenance? Um, I, I see some of them a little bit outdated, um, but I, I think when you've got some of these larger flood zones where you know, 
seven, eight hundred, nine hundred thousand dollars is going to maintenance. Um, go in the next level of explaining exactly what that annual maintenance looks like. Um, you know, I, I hear in, in Nevada there's there's a question from time to time because it's a big dollar amount, mm -hmm. and I think we could do a better job of explaining what it, it's a lot of miles that we cover, um, and it'd be good to get ahead of the issue and explain what that annual maintenance uh, actually looks like. Okay. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Eric, so I can go back to complimenting him now. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> I do want to thank you, Tracy, Roger, and Hannah, for the work that you've done uh, in Marin City, in Tam Valley, and also in Strawberry. Uh, and I appreciate the tenacity, particularly with the Marin City Pond Project in Stormbrain. I'm really looking forward to seeing those go in and see how they function next winter. So, no questions from me. Uh, I will now uh, call for public comment if there's no more. Okay, let's have public comment in the chambers. Not seeing anyone. Let's go online, see if anyone's yeah. here. Okay, then we will bring it back for the approval of the resolution. Yeah, let me kind of outline that for you, uh, if, if it's okay. Uh, according to the staff uh, letter, you're conducting public hearing, which you've done. And there are two actions. One is to adopt the uh, flood control baseline budgets, and then the second is to adopt this resolution uh, around the flood reduction projects for the coming year. And so if you could make a motion consistent with that board letter, uh, we'd appreciate it. Okay, and two separate motions? Or one? No, one, one's fine, uh, just consistent with the letter that's stated today. I'm happy to move formal adoption of the recommended flood zone nine baseline budgets and adopt the resolution to approve the district space facility maintenance and flood risk reduction projects for the coming year. Second. Okay, motion by Wright, second by Sackett. All in favor? Aye. 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 Okay, we have a budget. That leaves us with our last item for the day. This is the overview of the special districts budget for 22-24. Good afternoon, members of the board. I'm Nina Martinovich, Director of Finance, and I'm here today to provide an overview and a wrap-up of the special districts budget for fiscal year 2023-24. Okay. So first, before we dive in, I just wanted to give uh, a thank you to the departments and agencies that our office in the Department of Finance as part of our auditor controller functions, reviewing the overall reasonableness of the year-over-year -year appropriations. Um, so big thank you to Flood Control District, um, to Parks and Open Space, um, and to uh, the County Administrator's Office, in particular, Josh, thank you for your help in putting together and working with members of our staff um, on Schedule 12, which is the attachment to today's agenda item. And thank you to Phil Scott of the Department of Finance um, for compilation of Schedule 12. So before I go into the overview and the specifics of this fiscal year, I just wanted to, for us to get grounded in a general overview of special districts in general. Special districts are separate 
legal, legally separate entities. Um, they are public agencies that deliver specific services to local communities. And to better understand the types of special districts throughout the county, it's helpful to look at understanding the dynamic of their funding and their governance structure. So when a district is funded primarily through tax revenues, then it is considered a non-enterprise special district. Whereas um, if their operations rely mostly on user fees, then they are considered to be enterprise districts. Then in determining their dependence factor, um, if their governance structure is similar to that of uh, the County Board of Supervisors, it is considered to be a dependent special district. And then conversely, if it is their governance is comprised of an independent board of directors separate and apart from the county, they are considered to be independent special districts. Um, and so for our dependent special districts, the County Budget Act per government code uh, applies to them as well. Uh, hence why we're here today this week to uh, encompass special districts that are dependent with the county as part of this year's budget proposal. Okay, so the County of Marin has 45 dependent non-enterprise special districts, most of whom you've already heard from this afternoon. Um, but to go down our inventory of special districts that includes the in-home supportive services public authority of Marin, open space, the law library. We have 17 county service areas, 11 flood control zones, eight permanent road districts, three debt service funds pertaining to uh, open space district, two lighting districts, and one sewer maintenance district. So as part of the attachment that we provided for to this afternoon's agenda item to detail our uh, special district budget, we provided schedule 12. The budget requirements of special districts, uh, the provisions of which are contained in California Government Code sections 29000 and 29009. The form and function of schedule 12 is prescribed by the California State Controller's Office. So when it comes time for us to finalize our budget and submit it and publish it to the State Controller's Office, all of those schedules therein, those 15 total schedules, are prescribed specifically by the State Controller's Office. Schedule 12 is specific to providing a summary of recommended budget for dependent special districts, and the naming convention is special districts and other agencies non-enterprise. So specific for this upcoming fiscal year's proposed budget for our special districts, uh, total estimated revenues is $37.7 million, and total expenditures or financing uses is $35.9 million. Of these total appropriations, we provided just a breakdown of the special districts and their usage of that uh, appropriation amounts. Um, you'll notice that uh, open space takes up about a third at 11 million, followed by flood control zone, I'm sorry, uh, county service areas and flood control zones, both at about a quarter of that total, followed by 10% uh, for IHSS, public authority, 
and uh, the remaining uh, that are uh, pertaining to our lighting, sewer maintenance, and other special districts. So as part of our overview, uh, the auditor controller function of the Department of Finance, we perform a year-over-year -year comparative analysis of the annual appropriations by district and in turn come to your board um, in this discussion of, of the overview, provide a high-level explanation of where we see significant or notable fluctuations. And for the purpose of today's discussion and in consideration of the fact that no two districts are alike, um, and materiality and scope can vary. We simply identify those that have a percentage variance in excess of 10%. So we have a list of those districts where we saw significant fluctuations, which I'll now go over. And some of this may be a bit redundant given that we've presented on not only the capital improvement plan, um, flood control zones, and parks and open space. Um, so first is our county service areas, 14, Homestead Valley. They had an increase of 13% as compared to the prior year's adopted budget, of which are due to various facility improvements, meadow improvements, and fuel reduction work. County service area 17, Kentfield, experienced a decrease as compared to prior year adopted budget, and that's because there were a completion of capital projects during fiscal year 2023 that are not represented in the following year's budget. County service area 18, Galenas Village, there was an increase of 35%, and this is for planned playground equipment improvements and other facility improvements. County service area 19, Civic Center Fire Protection, increase of, an of 11%, reflecting increase of cost of fire protection services provided by the city of San Rafael. Next, we have flood control zone number three, Richardson Bay, uh, with an increase of 14%, of which Tracy Clay had just presented to your board. And for flood control zone three, um, the upcoming fiscal year's appropriations are detailed all in the capital improvement plan as well, um, having to do with Crest Marin pump station upgrade, Marin City pond and drainage improvements, and Marin City portable pump station before you jump, <coughs> these are in thousands of dollars, I assume? Yes, these are in thousands, I apologize. Next, we have the uh, Marin County Stormwater Pollution Prevention Program with an increase of 64% uh, for the proposed appropriations as compared to prior year adopted. And this increase was due to uh, work associated, planned work associated with the grant program with the Environmental Protection Agency. Next, we have a permanent road districts. Monte Cristo had a decrease of 89%. And this is because while the prior year adopted budget was around 65,000 on an actual expenditure basis, there were no expenditures incurred and there is no significant projects or maintenance planned for the upcoming fiscal year. And as such, the upcoming proposed budget is aligned to their budgeted revenues or financing sources. Similarly, for um, Permanent Road District Inverness Division Two, 
Um, same situation where while the uh, proposed the adopted budget from prior year was 19,000 on an actual basis there were no expenditures incurred. Um, the majority of road improvements were in fact completed in calendar year 2020 and so there are no significant projects or upcoming uh, maintenance plans and as such uh, their appropriations are aligned to budgeted revenues for fiscal year 24. Last uh, but certainly not least, Marin County open space uh, increase of 16%. And this essentially reflects the extension of Measure A by the voters of Marin uh, in June of last year. Uh, when comparing to prior year's adopted budget, um, fiscal year 23 adopted was a rather conservative approach given that at that point in time, uh, there was uncertainty on the outcome of the elections and whether the continuation of Measure A would take place. So last, last year's adopted budget was rather conservative and for fiscal year 24, we see that ramp up based off of the extension of Measure A. So actually, I believe that's the property tax uh, portion of the open space budget, which is separate from, as we were talking earlier this afternoon, it was originally Measure A, but it's not the sales tax Measure A. That sales tax Measure A uh, was not in the budget last year. This is the, to reflect the growth in the property tax, which is part of a pre-Prop 13 allocation of property tax for open space. So this is, that 17% is just reflecting the growth in property tax that has happened over uh, the last few years. Thank you for the clarification. Okay, so with that, uh, I'm open to any questions or comments your board may have on this overview of special districts. Thank you, Nina. Thank you. I'm gonna let the mayor of choice go. I, I'm just curious, uh, <laughs> so I'm trying to understand, how, how do you get a 17% increase in Marin County open space property tax over one year? I believe it's because uh, we hadn't been accounting for the excess ERAF funds coming into the fund. We just had their base, uh, and so now we've corrected for that and are including the excess ERAF funds on a more accurate level on, on a budget basis. All right, because there's, uh, there's two f sources of funding for uh, the property tax. It's like the regular property tax. And then, as you know, there's the ERAF, which was shifted away from the special districts. But if we get it back, then that comes back to them. And I think uh, open space was not fully accounting for the excess ERAF coming back to them. And so that it's both our typical growth rate, which is six point you know, 6%, but as well as the growth in the excess ERAF coming back to us. Gotcha. So in yeah. future years, typically, it won't, we typically won't see that kind of growth rate. We will not see that so growth rate on a year by year basis. Okay. Yeah. Sounds good. Thank yeah. you. Very instructive. I always learn something from your explanations. I didn't realize the difference between independent and dependent boards, so that was good. And I wanted to ask you if your budget reviews of the dependent um, boards, are they just high level or do you actually go through them in detail? It, it varies. So typically for the proposed budget, it's high level. Um, and our office is more uh, involved with the actuals. So when it comes down to the time to compile our financial statements, 
and all the expanded disclosures that are required as part of the annual comprehensive financial report, that is when we get into the details and the nitty-gritty of understanding fully what actually happened throughout the year. Um, we rely a lot on um, the expertise of the departments and the county administrator's office from the budget perspective. We, we review it on an overall reasonableness, but our office from an auditor-controller function, that's where we have um, the largest skin in the game, so to speak, in understanding actual revenues, actual expenditures, okay. and also developing uh, an understanding and documenting, telling the story of what occurred year over year. Right. Okay, so that I just, I'm gonna be um, opportunistic. If I wanted to understand, for instance, Homestead Valley um, pool maintenance and operation costs, would that be something that I could look at with you to find out more about? This is for another organization that would like to have a swimming pool. Absolutely, and we will work with our the, the departments as a whole to collectively provide, because our office also, um, you know, with property tax collections and uh, property tax bills, we have a certain bird's eye view of the funding, um, and as well as the any debt service requirements that may be associated with a particular entity. So in order to tell the full story and have a holistic approach in addressing um, questions that may arise uh, will definitely be a key player in that, but will ultimately involve um, the the districts themselves, the staff, um, and other departments that are involved in those uh, key work that's performed, as well as funding that comes in along with our county administrator as a whole. Okay, thank you. Thanks very much. Yeah, and supervisors, uh, <coughs> uh, Josh has corrected me. Uh, so. Um, this shows the open space budget. It's they're using a million dollars worth of fund balance. So in addition to the revenue, adjusting the revenue as I described, probably the more significant is the use of fund balance of a million dollars that's causing that growth rate, which is a one-time occurrence. And, and I assume some of the other ones are using fund balances as well, which is why the mm -hmm. increase or decrease year over year is kind of all over the place. Yeah. Makes sense, yeah. or not all over the place, just it, it discrepancy. It's lumpy. Yeah. Yes. Lumpy. There you yeah. go. <laughs> Is that the, the technical term? Yep, all that's right. The technical term. Yeah. <laughs> Nina, just to follow up, Supervisor Moulton Peterson's question: Perhaps on this chart on page six, having a column for which department is actually overseeing yes. those uh, independent districts would be helpful. Yes. Thank you. Okay, I am going to open the public hearing so that we can take any public comment on the special district's budget. I'm not seeing anyone from the public here in the chambers. We can go online. Uh, okay, we'll bring it back and close the. Rodrigo, please stand by. Uh, there are some audio issues in the chambers. Go ahead, Rodrigo. Oh, hi. Uh, <laughs> I might be in the wrong item, but uh, you, you could correct me. Uh, otherwise, I'll say it before tomorrow. But. Um, since uh, you're talking about special district, and I listened to your, your people and, and great presentations and explaining and everything uh, as to where the money goes and the requirements that, um, that it have to meet. 
And I was just wondering, um, like a, since I always talk about the Human Rights Commission, I'm just wondering, don't they have to comply with their requirements? Like in this particular case, their bylaws. Now their bylaws are clearly written and, and they're approved by you, by the Board of Supervisors. They are uh, you know, specified with numbers and everything. And it says what are the requirements that they have to follow, such as they have to give an annual report, they have to give a budget, they have to give a, a projection of where their money's going to go. But they haven't been doing this for the last close to 10 years. They've done it once. And now they just simply ignore it. So in a way, you cannot fund the, the Human Rights Commission unless they uh, comply with uh, the money trail. And it's and so um, and they have just as an example the very last meeting they spent like fifteen hundred dollars per a refrigerator in three locations that's forty five hundred dollars but there's no it's not going to show on your annual report because they don't they're not going to provide it and that's just the beginning uh, on such things as insurance and provision and the rest of provisions and and any kind of uh, volunteers and whether they get stipends so in the word. In other words, they do not deserve a budget because they do not, they have not complied with it. I'm asking that the Board of Supervisors and Brian Washington force them to provide a, um, a budget and an annual report and show the projection on their expenditures. Thank you. Trustee Peters, there are no additional speakers with you. Okay, we will bring it back and close the public hearing and I would entertain a motion to adopt the resolution uh, that adopts the budget of the county and special districts under the Board of Supervisors supervision and control for fiscal year 2023-24. I'll move that. It's going to be part of your final motion as well, but it doesn't hurt to adopt uh, the Schedule 12 that you were just presented. Okay. No, I'll so move the Schedule 12. Okay. All right. Second. Okay, we have a motion. Uh, Radoni, a second. Rice, all in favor? Aye. Aye. Okay, that carries. President Peters, I just wanted to mention for the caller and the people listening that the biannual reports for commissions is at the back of our budget binder. It's about 50-something pages of reports. So if anyone wants to look those up, that's the place they can find them. Uh, with that, I believe we're adjourned for the day, and we reconvene tomorrow at 1.30? That's correct. correct. Okay. Yep. Thank you, everyone. We'll see you tomorrow.